Really True Fiction is a podcast exploring famous stories to discover the wisdoms, lessons, insights, and ideas therein. Be advised that there will be heavy spoilers for whatever story we are discussing in this episode, as well as potential spoilers for other stories. Check episode notes or social media posts for additional spoilers. Please note that this podcast contains so many bad words and so many crude observations. If this is not your jam, please don't bring the toast. Welcome to another episode of Really True Fiction. My name is Luke Mason. And my name's David Parker. David, I have a question for you. <laughs> really? <laughs> I want to know, if you don't follow your dreams, do you want it to be because of your own disillusionment? Oof. That's a good one. You're getting on the serious questions now. <laughs> There's no more of these joke questions. Well, contrary to popular belief, Rick <laughs> Luke and Morty is a, is a very serious, serious man. <laughs> well, uh, that's still well, debatable. That's for debate. But Rick and Morty is a very serious show, so yeah, I want to know. Okay. Uh, no, I would definitely want... Why would anyone not follow their dreams? And I certainly wouldn't want it to be just because I got lazy and decided that that the world was too hard. Well, I don't think disillusionment is a synonym for laziness. I feel like it is. You think so? Yeah. It's like an excuse. Hmm. Okay. Mm. It's like, ah, the the world's too hard. Well, what about instead of abandoning your dreams, you just shift them a bit? Well, there's a difference, I think, between abandoning and shifting, right? <laughs> like, shifting is more information has come in, therefore, maybe I'll change course a little bit. When I was growing up, I wanted to be a prime minister, and then I worked for a prime minister, and I was like, I don't think I want that job. Mm. I still love the field, and I still love what I'm doing, but I don't think I want to be the guy. Okay. Right? So, what would be a reason to abandon your dreams? <laughs> I, I, there is no reason to abandon your dreams. Well, okay, but what if you have... Uh... A shitty dream. Well, <laughs> or a dream yeah. not I mean, worth like, having. What is a shitty dream? Like, I mean, is it really a dream if it's shitty? Um, I don't know. I feel like then you're just getting into a, a syllogistic okay, circle. So if it's a shitty dream, like, I secretly want to kill everyone, yeah, you should probably abandon that dream. <laughs> or, you know, I want power so that I can bash people's heads in and, you know, be in charge. That's probably bad, too. Well, actually realistically if if your dreams are shitty it's probably because your motivations are shitty yeah so maybe you should re right. your motivation but i think that's kind of the point of this question in the rick and morty universe anyway well, you, well i mean like because <laughs> i think we're on beth now right or well we'll yeah we're that, this is something beth says about morty i think it's in the vindicators episode it might be in the heist episode or of dream following but beth is saying how she doesn't want rick to be the one who tells Morty his dreams are stupid or what he's doing is not worth it. She wants Morty to figure it out for himself. Which is really <laughs> just her projecting onto Morty, right? Because yes, yes. her dream was to be... A, you know, but again, a, it's a, meta, though, right? Because right. it's not about any specific dream or aspiration that dreams, Morty has. Period. It's just dreams, period. If, that's what, if we're going to say that dreams are worth having and following... Beth just wants to make sure that if Morty doesn't want to follow in a path at some point, it's his decision. And I think that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, if I think that people can change their minds. I've seen right. lots of people burn out in politics and, mm-hmm. and go and live, quote-unquote, normal lives. Yeah, I always feel a little bit sad for them. Well, think of your example, I would say, about Prime Minister. It's one thing for you to realize 
uh, through your own process of life that it's not a job you want and come to that as it were of your own accord as opposed to someone saying hey you'll never be prime minister that's true so you should change that's your true. goddamn mind yeah no that's a good point <laughs> that's a very and i think so that's, that's a that's a, uh, probably a healthy dream development yes uh face but like one <laughs> of the things i think a lot about is how kids and let's take morty for even example often have very limited understanding of their dreams yeah and they don't know what it takes to get to a certain place. And I know I was there for sure. Like, mm-hmm. when I got to the prime minister's office, I didn't even know what a memorandum to cabinet was. And I'd taken four years of university. You didn't know politics. what a memorandum to cabinet, idiot. <laughs> well, I was. Like, the- I think that's how things get done. Uh, Asterix. <laughs> Luke has no idea what that is. Asterix. <laughs> anyway, the point being that uh, you just don't understand the complexity of reality when you're dreaming as a child. So sure. if, I think if you're if you have the same dreams mm. all throughout your life yeah. that might be problematic interesting we've talked about this in relationships like i think you kind of fantasize about a perfect relationship mm-hmm. where you know but that's not actually what a relationship is it's hard right. work and what's interesting about rick and morty is that rick is often correct in his analysis of the disappointment morty's going to come to yes if he yes. as it were puts his faith in the vindicators yeah right or yeah. thinks that he wants to write a heist script for netflix <laughs> right which like they rick, loved and funnily enough but yeah. he was disillusioned with the whole heist yeah. world in and general be, because of rick's genius and experience of life he already he can just see all these things way before you you heisted his mind <laughs> yeah <laughs> way before morty could experience them and so yeah. in a sense rick is trying to i guess best interpretation he's trying to save morty time yeah <laughs> by trying to that's probably make morty uh, realize that's, that's the nicest that's version. the steel manning of his <laughs> yeah. intentions and yeah. i think beth is pointing out that the the human truth that beth is getting at is that actually he's really only going to learn those lessons if he goes through it himself and you can coach and you can provide education but there's like to me it's well, we a talked big difference about this between in the last education it's a, it's a big difference between education and lecturing yeah, like because we talked about this in the last episode with why wouldn't you go to the experts right away? Well, because how are you if you're just always relying on experts, you're going to have a weakness in actually the doing of things, yeah. right? And I think that is kind of Rick's method of education seems to be entirely practical mm-hmm. like, and just telling Morty, yeah, <laughs> what? To yeah, do. it's like no, no, don't do it that way. Yeah, okay. Well, I like how. Even my attempts at funny questions go into the <laughs> into the depths. Into a good round of analysis. <laughs> yeah. So well done. So yes, today we are concluding our Rick and Morty trilogy, part three. So if you are wondering why we don't focus on Rick or Morty or Jerry <laughs> very much in this episode, it's because we've covered all of them in the previous two. So today we're going to focus. We're going to talk about Summer and Beth the last two members of the Smith family who are very important to the show. And then we're going to talk about some of the auxiliary characters who make either one really impressive appearance or a handful of recurring appearances that are kind of fun and funny. And then finish up by talking about some of the show motifs and ideas and thoughts and just um, tidbits from just the run. And it's weird because we're, well, I guess South Park's still making episodes, but like i don't think rick and morty's over no right no, I or, think or so. as of recording this which is in february of 2020 it seems like it's still gonna be happening i mean if you're listening to this much later in the future <laughs> then it might perhaps, be done, but yeah. as of recording so it's an interesting and it's always in, i think it's interesting to analyze something as it's going 
It was different with Rick and Morty because it's not one coherent narrative. If you analyze Breaking Bad after season three... That would be different than analyzing The Simpsons after season five. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And so, like, with Breaking Bad, you need the whole show, I think, to do it justice. Even though Rick and Morty is more of a hybrid... I still think you don't need the whole show no, to do it just unless they yeah. radically change their motifs, which should be funny. Which could we happen, could, right? And then we could do a Rick and Morty part four. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, Summer Smith, opening thoughts on Summer. I mean, it's funny how much of a drop off there is from Rick and Morty and even Jerry to Summer. Like she just doesn't play nearly as big of a role. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like the development that she has on actually building a relationship with Rick mm-hmm. over the course of the four seasons. Yeah. Whereas in the first, she's kind of just very tertiary, not like hardly. Oh, involved. season season one, very uninvolved. Yeah. I actually thought that one of, to me, one of my favorite parts of the show is how much more involved she gets in season two, and becomes yeah, and kind continues of to. Oh, she becomes mini Morty yeah. in the adventure sense. So that's know? good. She's just kind of basic. Okay. And I find that to be charming at times, but also a little bit annoying. Mm, or maybe uh, But I guess that's the Jerry in her as well. Like, just the more I think about it, the more I hate Jerry. Um, <laughs> right. I yes. mean, I feel really bad for her and Morty having a dad like that. Like, <laughs> at least they have Rick to kind of balance mm-hmm. it out. She seems less obsessed. I, and I see this in women in general, they're less easily tricked by their biology to a degree. Like she wants to date and she enjoys dating guys, but she's not obsessed with men in the way that, that Morty is obsessed with women or particularly Jessica. She's got a more maturity to her. And the funny thing is like, if, if you put her in a room with Beth and Jerry She's definitely the most mature one. Like she's kind of like, <laughs> "What are you guys doing? Like yeah. stop!" Like, like she has a good head on her shoulders, but she's not annoying like Morty is in some ways, right? Yeah. Like she's very grounded in real life. Yeah, but it still kind of enjoys adventures with mm-hmm. with Rick. I actually think I find her to be a pretty accurate portrayal of a seventeen year old girl. <laughs> Right, because they're really adult, basically adults. Yeah, they're they're. Um, my remembrances of high school was that, in general, seventeen-year-old girls are more mature than seventeen-year-old boys. Is, this, is my, this will be my shout out to my friend Scott Ellis, who told me I, I laughed for years about this, but he his um wife is on the board of a of a school, so he mm. still attends like the the grade twelve dances and stuff because yeah. she has to go to them. And he told me once it was like. Going to these graduations is so <laughs> weird. He's like, because you look at the women, the girls, and they're all like women. They're like grown women. And then you look at the boys, and they're just puppies. Like their feet are too big, and they just right. don't, they don't have they're they're not put together at all. He's like puppies. I just love that. Just this picture of like at the dance where they're just kind of staring at their feet, and yeah. they don't know what to do with themselves. Well. That's a good point, and it's true, and it's funny looking back at old pictures and stuff like that. But as I think about it now, Summer is – what I like about Summer and, and, and how she's portrayed in the show is it's kind of similar to Morty, I guess, is that she is – she's not made to be outside of the kind of stereotype of – you know, someone who's 17 in high school. Yeah, she's more mature than the people her age, but she still kind of will swoon over the boys who are two or three years older than her kind yeah, of thing, yeah. right? And that's probably her kryptonite. Um, but it's not a boy. No. Yeah. But it's, 
I guess this is what they do when they write these characters is that she, she and Morty are both like this is that they are in one sense, they're a stereotype of a teenager in school, but I think it's like a stereotype that is extended properly in that they're not dummies either. And I think that that is actually more accurate. Conventionally, the stereotype of a high school girl is maybe the, <laughs> the really shrill one or, you know, there's archetypes, mm-hmm. right? There's the cheerleader yeah. Yeah. or there's the nerd, maybe like Breakfast Club kind of thing, even though I love that movie very much. They're all archetypes, right? Whereas I actually believe, and my experience tells me this, is that the people at that age, any age, but since we're talking about Summer and she's in high school, they're actually like a little bit of everything, right? They're interested in kind of music. They like spending time with their friends. They probably enjoy science class, even if it's like kind of not cool to say it. They like dancing, but Summer also likes thinking about deep stuff when it comes up. Like she's just a little more balanced, yeah, and and that's There's a holistic yeah life and it's that she's kind of same with Morty and and I think Summer grows in a similar way to how Morty does, not as accentuated or as detailed because Morty is a more central character to the show than Summer, but I do see their character arcs on a similar trajectory, if not the same distance traveled, and I like that because I think it's true with Morty too in that he's interested in a bunch of different stuff. To me, it's the right kind of stereotype in that it's Summer's kind of interested in lots of different things and both mature to talk to her parents about their (laughs) dissolving marriage, but also kind of saddened by that at the same time. And I I think that that's a realistic take is like, yeah, there are moments when 17-year-olds can be really logical (laughs) and very insightful. And then yet the pain of potentially having your parents divorce hits her at times too. Yeah. You know? Well, and I think... I think the pain that she experiences is a lot of having to be the adult. She yeah, seems she's so kind of annoyed by it. this whole wow. Like, and she's the oldest too. So, I mean, you and I are both oldest. We know that there's a a level of just responsibility you feel, whether it's imposed or not. And she definitely seems kind of feeling like she's responsible for Morty to a degree. But now she's kind of the adult in her parents' relationship, which mm-hmm. is annoying yeah. to her. I think. And she does get a little bit violent yep. <laughs> when her parents well, are she's divorcing. Got that, she's got that streak that uh, obviously Beth has. Mm-hmm. We learned about the in the Fruity Land yeah. episode, and she's got that uh, the streak that obviously Rick has too. So mm-hmm. it's funny because if you think about it, it, doesn't look like Morty has that streak mm-hmm. to the same degree, but she's definitely got a violent streak. Yeah, and I guess I like that idea of she's kind of like normal plus or yeah. basic plus in that the sense that she's a normal kid more historically in our culture normal means kind of like archetypes it was like no i think to me normal is that she's a little bit interested in a lot of different things and she could probably be a little bit comfortable in lots of different scenarios yeah yeah well she seems to be comfortable in a lot of different scenarios (laughs) and i think that's her strength and it's morty's too and i i like that portrayal because it's accurate to well, my memory it's interesting because anyway. there's that episode where they end up in like that mad max world right where <laughs> yeah, yeah, morty yeah. has the arm that just like he destroys everyone right and i've always liked that episode because she really she actually fully like fits in and become and and quickly adapts like she's got a high level of adaptability whereas almost no one else in the show seems to <laughs> beth doesn't yeah i mean i guess there's that the, they live in that weird world where they are the only humans mm-hmm. but well, I mean, this is this is what I think is so great about Summer, 
is that there are some episodes like that Mad Max where she is wrong. She's incorrect yes. in yeah. some deep way. She's a kid still. And yet in other episodes, she is right in some deep way. And I like that that fluctuation of her is kind of accurate in but yeah, people. I mean, you're going to be that way <laughs> you know? when you're, yeah. well, always, but yeah. when you're young particularly. Mm-hmm. So speaking of her being young, this was something I thought was interesting and is worth talking about for a second is that early on summer has a line the burqa is a human rights violation which is you know (laughs) depending how seriously you want to take the concept of human rights as a philosophical movement uh, i think that that's a accurate statement but i think the more interesting question is the moral vivacity of the young i've heard christina hoff summers and others talk about and this is not going to be surprising as a psychological category but there's like an age for young people when they have a lot of what is called moral energy, right? Right. And it happens a lot in university. I think that's that 18 to 24 age range of people is, and it's. I definitely had that. That's when I was at my most uh, energetic, right? morally speaking. And I think the great tempering of 20s, of your mid to late 20s, as you start to get some life outside of university and as it were more in the real world is that you realize that moral energy is important, but it's probably not enough, right? Well, you need moral thinking too. Well, you, the problem is that you can be wrong. Yeah, exactly. Right? And I think that's the tempering is, oh, wait, I don't have the same conviction in my ideas as I did. Not because those ideas are even necessarily wrong, although they could be, mm-hmm. but because you're aware that you're finite in a way. You're just not yeah. aware from 18 to 24. You don't feel... That's the tragedy of people who die during that age is everyone's like, oh, they were so young. But a big part of it is you're just so optimistic. Well, not everyone, but like mm-hmm. I remember a lot of people my age during my university years being incredibly optimistic about their futures. Yeah. Now they're not. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I think that goes back to your very first question about dreams. But I think moral conviction is, uh, I hate to say this, can come from ignorance. Hmm. Well, and it's te- it's... It feels good. So there's there's a cathartic element to it, which is, I think, understandable. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> right? Yeah. I have a lot of empathy for that part of it. I'm just thinking about this right now, though, too, is that I think for the most part, now obviously there are going to be exceptions to this, but for the most part, a young person is raised in a household, often with one or two parents. And even one or two parents, they could be so cosmopolitan and worldly, and yet still you're getting your fundamental kind of value and worldview from those two people or one person, right? And then when you go to university, you're starting to broaden that a bit more, but you're still, I still think professors have a pretty strong influence on the minds of their students, you know? Particularly, I would say, the more charismatic professors yeah. who yeah. engage with the students. There's there's the ones that just go up there and teach and then leave, and yeah. I don't think those ones have well, and, as oh, much Well, yeah, of course, and I mean, you... You don't need me to talk to you about the importance of rhetoric and charisma. And I mean, that's, you know, that's all the way back to the Greeks talking about (laughs) how that works out, right? (laughs) Poor Socrates. (laughs) Uh, Maybe I'm just speaking autobiographically here, but it wasn't until I left university that I really started feeling like I just was, how would I phrase it? Like getting flooded with context. So just meeting so many different kinds of people from all over the world and different walks of life, traveling to Korea, meeting people from all over the place there, like seeing a completely different culture and how it operates and how 
there's some things that are similar to Canada and lots that's completely different. And yet it's a functioning society all the same. So my, my moral vivacity or my moral energy, is, it met a brick wall when it came to Korea, especially as it came to education, culture, and norms. And I didn't deal with that very maturely. I kind of got into a lot of arguments with my bosses in Korea who were Korean, who just, they couldn't see my point. And it was, and it didn't matter how aggressively or excitedly I said it. It's right. Like, well, that's just, just not what we do here. It sense contextually <laughs> yeah. for them. Yeah. So I think that that plays a part, like the, the lack of many different influences on yeah, a like young, being in a bubble. Person. Yeah. But I think, I think people inevitably end up in a bubble no matter mm. what. Like, I think you can only get so much context. I mean, that's the beauty of reading and, and storytelling and art is that they try to give us yeah. another context. Truly great books contextualize you in the environment of, right. the, of the author's mind. Mm -hmm. And reading different ones can broaden your horizon in a way <laughs> that nothing else can. Yeah. But the truth of the matter is we spend most of our time doing what we do for a living. Yeah. Right? And that yeah, becomes yeah, yeah. our bubble. Yeah, like, but I think there's less and less like we just have better access than ever right but like more. the bubbles are, are becoming i think more and more apparent like there, sure. there are orthodoxies within groups of people that that cannot go cannot be questioned well i think the apparent apparency the apparentness of the bubbles is actually a feature of how much easier it is to learn things true true that's a good so point. At, a, at a broader level if we were going to talk about summer again, though, if summer says the burqa is a human rights violation, how much does summer know about the burqa or human rights violations or what human rights are philosophically as my guess would be not a ton. Or the freedom of choice <laughs> that yeah. uh, that these people have now, in certain contexts to do this on their own volition. Now, what I say is the beauty of living at the time in history when we do, which is post-enlightenment, is that there's actually a lot of philosophy done on this kind of yes. topic. You know, yeah. There is a lot of work out there that you could go find. I wonder, slash I think, I guess I, I would say I think, is that maybe in 15 years, once Summer reads a little bit of Thomas Paine and maybe even some Kant <laughs> and throwing a little Camus. Camus, but then also to juxtapose it against some of the consequentialists, like reading some Bentham and some John Stuart Mill. Like these are people who've dedicated a lot of their time and mental energy into talking about this specific thing. And yet, and, and it, there are obviously parallels to the real world right now where it's like students at colleges or young people having very strident and intransigent stances on environmentalism or um, sustainability or rights of people who have been generally on the fringe or outside of the hegemonic society, right? Now, these young people who have these convictions, they, they're not necessarily wrong. It's just that they might not know how to be right next time again because they haven't developed a process of deep, deeply thinking about their own stances. You know, I'm, growing up, mom always used to say to me the truth in love. Right. And I think that's a, when you're kind of in that zealous, uh, moral, you know, mm -hmm. conviction time right. period of your life. It's more about the truth and less about the love. Mm -hmm. No one's going to listen to you. <laughs> There's no hearts and minds approach. To yeah. That way. No, like, like I was this way. One hundred percent. Like I was a theological crusader of sorts, mm. like in the sense that. I was like, this is the way that it's, this is the truth. This is the way it's got to be. And I would argue with everyone from my dad who had like 
years and years more experience in this stuff to mm-hmm. to someone my own age. And it was only because I had a level of conviction that just not, is not commensurate with reality. Right. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. there's no humility in that level of conviction. Yeah. Like, again, I don't, I don't like to sound like I'm all oh, young people... Just no, I, I mean, I miss that level of conviction. Yeah, yeah there, there is there is something addicting about it, I think, which is, again, part of it. It's cathartic, almost like a drug feeling. Again, I, I guess I just have to reiterate something I remember Hitchens saying that struck me. So it was like, your heart on fire, but your head on ice. And if your heart's on fire and your head's on fire, you're just going to burn up. <laughs> yeah, <that's, laughs> right? yeah, and, yeah. And how yeah. many morally disillusioned... 28 year olds do it <laughs> you know like oh man like it just wasn't exactly how i thought and i even and i'm i'm i don't know if embarrassed is the right word i i shy away a little bit of thinking of how certain i was of things about the world when i was 21 <laughs> you know yeah i understand that but i think it to another degree it's inevitable yeah well it's the parts that are inevitable is where i give myself grace right where- and the parts that aren't is where learning and behavior changing. You're not going to learn. Yeah. Well, we, they're not going to learn unless you fail a little bit. Yeah. True. True, true, true. Okay. Here's something else I like about Summer. I think it's the Body Snatchers episode or the Unity. The the Unity episode, right? Where Unity takes over a whole planet. Rick and Unity are using euphemisms for what they're doing. Or right. what she's doing, right? Right. And she says, you mean stealing people's bodies. And I made the note of she'll often say it how it is. Without the euphemism. Cut through everything, yeah. I think that's... Her and Morty do this, but she does it a lot. And, well, that's just something I like about people. Well, there's an element of Rick in that, but on a different level, Mm -hmm. right? Like, Rick is often cutting through the bullshit, and she cuts through Rick's bullshit. Yeah, but, but Rick is cutting through bullshit... Not because he thinks that there's a moral transgression going on no, here. No, because he thinks because everything's bullshit. <laughs> because something's getting in his way for yeah. what he wants yeah. to do. Yeah. Whereas but Summer's got moral conviction. Yeah, she does. Yeah. And I guess one of my pet peeves of the you know, intellectual world or just world in general is euphemism. And this goes back to, if you want to read, I think, the best breakdown of this intellectually, uh, it's... George Orwell's essay, Politics in the English Language, yeah, when he goes essay. through, and I mean, he's writing in the midst of the bureaucratic takeover of Europe. Yeah. <laughs> and that, that all, hasn't ended. And, like, and it's how it's there. even infected England while that was happening. Yeah, Unity's talking about, you know, while I'm giving them something else. You know, it's like all the things that she's saying, and and someone's like, no, you're, you're stealing their bodies, right? Like, this is clear. And it reminds me a little bit of something Dawkins wrote once where clarity is genius (laughs) or Einstein wrote, if you can't explain it to a 10 year old, you shouldn't be explaining it. Right. (laughs) Right. If you can't break it down into a way a 10 year old could understand, you don't understand it. You're probably not an expert. Yeah. You don't understand it. Yeah. Now that's on one level, but I think like in the episode, it's a kind of deception. It's a kind of like getting muddled up in the uncertainty or the un. You can't pin unity down on a word usage because there's like enough wiggle room to get out of it because it's a little bit vague or it's a little bit, there isn't like a, a an exact referent right, for the right. adjective being used. Or I believe uh, nominalizations are used or as I think it's Helen something, the linguist calls them zombie nouns. Oh. <laughs> they just, just wander over the page unattached to any active agent. So like instead of saying David canceled the party, you would say the, there has been a cancellation. 
Right. <laughs> right? You unattach right. any agent or any person responsible. You take away responsibility. You take away responsibility. Like, That's no- bureaucratic language yeah. to the core. Oh, to the core, right? And nominalizations take away agency, and yet... Somebody canceled the party, right? right? Somebody, right. there hasn't been a bombing. But that's no longer. <laughs> Somebody yeah. bombed. Right? Yeah. It's still yeah. people who do stuff. There's no active yeah. actor. Yeah. And I think that that kind of instinct that Summer shows is incredibly important to like journalism or any sort of truth telling institution. Yeah. <laughs> if those exist anymore. <laughs> right? <laughs> so I, and I, I just, but it's like the thing I like about it is that it's not. I think that that is the fountainhead human default. And then there's the layer of bureaucracy or double talk or double think that has to be tried or repressed. Yeah. Right. It's not like in 1984, O'Brien needs to figure out how to make Winston have his own thoughts. Right. He needs to make Winston have his thoughts. Yeah. Like that's the effort. And that's why I'm optimistic is that the wellspring is that actually effort still is still required. Yeah. 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 And it's not, you don't have it. It would never work like this, but it's not like someone has to make Summer say that. Like, that comes to her just kind of her own constitution in the world, right? And that's the part that tries to get suppressed by ideologies or systems of (laughs) control. And even though that's extremely depressing, and it happens incrementally in developed societies through bureaucracy instead of through armies (laughs) or military, why I'm optimistic is that it... It, that effort needs to be put in because they're trying to stamp something out that's kind of a priori to that. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And that's why I, I like Summer in that moment and I'm optimistic. It's not even like I dislike Unity. I just think, I think it, it can creep into anyone, right? It can creep in. I sometimes have to catch myself when I'm talking to kids using buzzwords or zombie nouns. And kids are the least likely to fall for this stuff because <laughs> they don't know they don't have they haven't developed that extra level of abstraction to see like oh he's avoiding a different conflict by using these right. kind of they're words, just like right? that they're doesn't just make like, sense that doesn't make any yeah. sense right <laughs> somebody had to right right cuz i mean or if you just ask who or if why you, if you say something like um there isn't a snack today they'll be like well why didn't you make us one <laughs> it's like they don't need that extra <laughs> right. step they're just like well you're responsible for yeah, snack and there's no so, snack yeah exactly <laughs> All right. Um, she owns things. At least when I'm disgusting, it's on purpose. Right. <laughs> and I like that because it reminds me of that quote, a gentleman is only someone who's rude on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> or can be, I So suppose. I think it's the mental, the mental state of intention. Like, I know what I'm doing. I think we've talked about this before, how I'm less perturbed by that if I know someone's self-aware. But they're doing, even if it's something I don't like. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I think that there's something about Summer there. She had some funny lines. There's the nihilistic brute I fell for. <laughs> <laughs> but here's something interesting. Her hardest moments, uh, and I think this is important, things get real bad for her when she pursues something vain, right? So the scene where she, or the episode where the Ray and she's trying to get bigger boobs it doesn't work out. It makes and she her goes, bigger, yeah. Well, first the, her boobs get really lopsided, and then she has to re, <laughs> reconfigure, and then they're just both growing too yeah. big, and then she grows huge and then turns inside out. And so that all of her problems in that episode stem from her vanity. Yeah. And maybe this is obvious, but I don't know how to say this, right? Because it seems clear. Like th- There's just something about vanity I, I have such a standoffish relationship with. Because it's not even hate. Or it's not even 
it doesn't rise to the level of me feeling like it deserves my emotional right. <laughs> reaction. It's just, I okay, I'll put it to you this way. I operate under the assumption that everyone knows vanity is stupid. <laughs> right. Now, obviously, that's not the case, but well, for well. my, it's totally an undercurrent. I don't even think about it, right? And so an episode like this, I think, is a good reminder for me is that, yeah, I think, I think vanity is one of the deepest soul corruptors in life. And it's so prevalent. This was something that I learned the hard way because I never ever cared about it at all. Like it was, I didn't even take care of myself when in my teenage years, like I reeked like my friends would have, because I don't have a sense of smell, but like I didn't think about it and didn't care about it. And I yeah, thought, for listeners who don't know, David can't smell because when he was a little kid, he hit his head really hard yes. and lost that sense. <laughs> so not blind, but unable to smell. They mm. call it asnosmic. Asnosmic. So one of my realizations was that vanity really does matter to people. And like yeah. you can't I mean, this is this may sound like a truism, but it wasn't to me because I had to learn it. If you reek and you don't take care of yourself and you look like like a bum, mm. people are going to have a less opinion of you. Yeah, I'm I don't think that would count as vanity though. Well like, vanity is taking there's a degree of where you like take really good care of yourself because you want people to perceive you a certain way. Yeah. Right. Well, or you, you, you don't know. I, I would say actually it's, you're not taking care of yourself. You're just doing things that make it look like you do. Uh, I like that. Okay. Right? That's like, a good like, definition. Yeah. There are people who are like, I obviously have nothing against exercise. No, <laughs> I exercise <laughs> myself and I like to play sports and I have no, well, I mean, it's good for you. Yeah, it's good for you. And like, obviously, I have no castigations against anyone who wants to go to the gym no, <laughs> or like no. improve their health. I mean, the vanity of Summer is that she needs bigger boobs so that a boy will like her. Right. <laughs> right? Like, that's the whole MO. And I think it's just excessive. To me, it's things like excessive use of cologne. And, right. and like what like, what's the point no one no one thinks you actually smell like that or <laughs> i know, find or, i I'm, I'm gonna take heat for this probably but i find like an undue obsession with fashion to be a real put off mm. like if, if if you're like wow you got that kind of shoe i'm like are we in high school like who <laughs> fucking cares but but it's huge among wealthy people because mm. you need something to display that things are going well yeah, well, maybe so it's like, there might be a correlation. But this is why, like, people like ease of life, Bill Gates and right. like and Zuckerberg and people like <laughs> I've heard this said before that there's kind of a spectrum, right? There's like if you're you're homeless and slub, schlubby, you can just kind of wear whatever you want, and then as you progress, you have to like become more and more professional dressed, and then you reach a certain mm-hmm. point, you can do whatever you want, again Because right. like you don't need to prove anything. Mm-hmm. And I think that that spectrum is interesting because what it really tells us is. None of that in between matters. Yeah. It only matters to the people that you're trying to climb over to get mm-hmm. to the top. Well, since we're um, diving headfirst into uh, taking heat, <laughs> might as well jump into the deep end. Okay, no here, we go. Jacket on. here we go. Of all of the kind of existential experiences I've had in life, one of the greatest, I truly think, is that there is a what would be inverse relationship between vanity and depth of soul. Interesting. Okay. So the higher the vanity, the lower the depth kind of thing, because you become what you pursue. So if you pursue 
thinking and feeling and music and compassion and kindness and thoughtfulness and mindfulness and high level conversation and getting to truths behind the next um, curtain, right? Just always that kind of pursuit. Like if you're Frodo and Sam, you're probably going to end up looking worse (laughs) than someone who just stays in the Shire. Yeah. And so I think that those are things you pursue. And if you pursue excessive makeup or tanning beds or things of this nature, you are in one sense, like the libertarian in me says, do whatever the fuck you want. But the existentialist means says, I, I just think you're missing the point of living. <laughs> and that's, that's I, how I, I phrase I it. I want to go further on this because I, I agree with you 100%. But I think it goes back to that whole you are what you become what you pursue. Mm. And like there are trivial things in life <laughs> yes. that can consume you. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, these things go from anything to an over obsession with sports too, right? Like, not that I have a problem with people who love sports. I love sports. I love watching sports. But like, if that's all you care about and you become consumed by that, you are a shallow person. Mm. Like, I'm sorry, you right. just are. But it's the same with vanity, yeah. right? If if what you become consumed with, I mean, David Foster Wallace says it in This Is Water. He's like, the problem with worshiping beauty is you will die a thousand deaths yes. before you die. Yeah, no, because obviously as you age, more poetic than right? I can be. Yeah. <laughs> As you age, it's going to hurt because what you worship is being taken from you bit by bit. Mm-hmm. Well, the word superficial itself just means on the outside. Yeah. Right? Like right. it's like the the bark is the superficial part of the tree, right? Or the, the uh, paint is the superficial part of the house. And by its nature, those things can't sustain something long term. Yeah, you need something deeper to, like as a person to, to stand up against mortality because mm-hmm. Entropy is hitting you, and it doesn't like one of my best friends, Cole, always says, We're all going to be ugly one day. Mm-hmm. Well, let's just get there earlier. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, think about if you put it in like more practical arenas, think about how crazy you would find the person who spent 99% of their time and resources on the color of the outside of their house and 1% on its foundations, or <laughs> or even the, the furniture wood. inside, right? Yeah, or yeah, even yeah. like the Any living of, area. Yeah. It was just the, an immaculate mm-hmm. yard, and they were hoarders. So people will drive by. Yeah. I mean, there's a great joke of this actually in Arrested Development because the premise of that show is that the Bluth company makes homes, right? And so there's one episode where they want to impress some investors and they only have like two weeks to make a house, but they can't do that. So Job, as the acting president, says, let's just make the four walls, <laughs> right? Like, let's just make it look like it's a house from the outside. And that joke doesn't need to be spelled out. Right. right, like that joke is immediately apparent. I guess I don't really want to rail on this for too long other than it's one of those things where it feels like everyone pays lip service to understanding how unimportant the superficial side of life is. And yet, they, and yet there's still a lot still of engagement it a lot. in it. Well, I think because there's um, perverse incentives, right? Like we forget that there's so much life on either side of like the the incredibly viral, fertile period of life, right? right, right which right. is kind of that what 18 to 35 Mm. that's kind of like when you're at your peak physically as a man or a woman and we forget that the beauty of life is not contained in that because we kind of worship youth right now (laughs) right like we worship it in our hollywood movies we worship it in our sex industry we worship Mm. like 
not a lot of people, although there's obviously niches for everything, not mm. a lot of people are watching like 50-year-olds banging, right? Like, <laughs> well. That's not a, that's not a, a high-traffic porn Oh, David, area. please don't search my Pornhub history. Then. Oh, no. <laughs> well, whatever. But you're, you're right. My point right. is that we worship youth, mm. and in worshiping youth, we almost worship something that is superficial. Mm. Well, I'm glad you actually brought that up because it reminds me of a line from my all-time favorite song, which is called Big Casino by Jimmy World. And the end of the second verse is, and I'll tell you something else that you're not dying enough to know. There's still some living left when your prime comes and goes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I think that's kind of the same sentiment you're... That's what I'm saying. Like, yeah, I'm yeah thinking, the obsession with youth. If like, you're obsessed with the things that you care about when you're 18, mm-hmm. when you're when you're 35 or 40, right. then that's sad. Well, I guess I just would leave it again at the Lord of the Rings analogy is that if you look at the kind of people that Frodo and Sam are able to find themselves in company with, the quality of the Aragorns and the Gandalfs and the Legolases and the Gimlis and even the Boromirs at his good moments, but even Elrond, just the quality of character that they're able to find when they pursue destroying the ring, which is, again, representative of destroying temptation, destroying power, mm. destroying that evil call to destruction, as opposed to if they didn't do that and they just hung around the Shire and we see the hobbits are nice and kind of vain and small-minded and there's, in one sense, nothing wrong with that existence, but just think of how much of more depth of existential place in the world sam and frodo have after that adventure yeah and i think that's the least judgy way i can put it even though i will wholly admit this is something i'm 100 percent judgmental about all i can admit to is i i do it with as much open eyes as i possibly can even to my own superficialities which i work on lowering right <laughs> right and no, so I like that um, and then I guess the last thing I have here about Summer we should talk about is a line she has. Bitch, my generation gets traumatized for breakfast. I love that line. <laughs> Bit of social commentary. like <laughs> It's self-aware. The show is so self-aware in its critiques and comments. And it's fair-minded. It doesn't take on it, – it. it's not committed, I think, to one side of a political spectrum. I think it goes after sacred cows on any on either side of the cultural and political divide these days. So – I mean, here that, we are. Here we are, um, pontificating on the generation that's coming after us. But traumatized for breakfast, like, yeah. I what mean, do you think about all this? Oh, I think I think outrage is a powerful emotion, and it produces a lot of dopamine, right? And I I think humans are easily drawn. Like we ask ourselves, how do these evil things happen in the world? Like, I mean, Jordan Peterson talks about the gulag a lot, right? And and what happened there, but also what happened in Nazi Germany? What happened when with Mayans sacrificing people? Like the the, the question is, why does there's there's good in humans? I think mm. we we talk about that a lot. Why do all these evil things happen? Right. And the answer is because it feels good. Yeah, like, probably. If we if we pretend like outrage doesn't give you dopamine or, you know, there isn't a little bit of a sadist in all of us or, mm-hmm. you know, who hasn't gloried in the defeat of their enemies. Right. Like or people they don't like having bad times come upon them. It is very easy to be animals. Right. It's hard to be human. <laughs> yeah, okay, so hmm, I've been trying to sort out my thoughts on this a little bit because 
I see both sides, and I think one side I see stronger than the other. So the side I, I see but I don't think is as strong is like, yeah, it's hard to be young. Life is, especially when you're young, like your your emotions are so much more volatile because of your hormones and your growth and your maybe experiencing things for the first time. So you don't have references to slot them in with to say like, oh, I've actually kind of gone through this before and I didn't and I survived. So I'll probably survive this one too. So you don't have quite as much emotional resiliency when you're young. So I think it's not uncommon. I mean, I you watch, you watch movies about, so Breakfast Club's on. So that's 1985. So there were the young people, you know, the five kids were all born probably in like the seventies. Oh no, they would well 60s. if they're they're in high school, so they've been born like sixty eight, sixty nine right. kind of thing. So today they'd be in their what is it like? F- they'd be fifty. They'd be almost <laughs> right? sixty. Well, no, if they're born sixty nine. Oh yeah, then they'd, they'd be, be fifty one. Yeah. Right? If they're eighteen in nineteen eighty five, that means they were born in sixty seven. So they'd be 54 now, right? Like, So let's say like these people are 54. So like these are people who now are, you know, kind of in one sense running the world. <laughs> like that yeah. generation. Anyway. Yeah. But they were young. They were impetuous. And they had their problems. And it's just funny how, yeah, there is growth. And I mean, I see it in myself even how I was pretty emotionally volatile when I was a teenager. And I feel very much not that way now. And there's growth. So I think it's to be young and frustrated with the world is part of the human condition like that's pretty common yeah, yeah. and i yeah. think that's you we all go through what our rebel phase right? yeah where it's like yeah. you know screw the man that now kind of and maybe this is controversial i don't know like this is my just my observations about the current culture and zeitgeist is that it seems to me like for the first time at least certainly in my life and in the last 70 years and probably ever when the young people act out in the ways that they do now the adults surrender to them. Yeah. Like and it was changing when I was in university, definitely not the like generation before me. When young people act out, there's a kind of if it's done well, there's a there's an adult who's like, Yeah, I understand your feelings, but you need to grow up. <laughs> Here's yeah. where. And we're not yeah. gonna we're not gonna capitulate our institutions to you because of your buzzword feeling. <laughs> Well, you. Indicators. The thing is, you look at like um, Burning Man or Woodstock, right? right? Like right. things like that. You look at that generation was trying to rebel, and everyone just kind of wrote them off. But then they ended up taking over, <laughs> right? And I think when a hippie generation, let's call it that, takes over, they are going to capitulate. Well, outrage. what do you think? Because what do you mean take over? Like in the institutions? They're, well, they're in charge now, right? Like that generation was was broadly speaking that sentiment well, of. Fuck the rules. That's probably part of it. I I would say I think a bigger reason is social media. For the first time, the young people acting out have a way they can, bigger... They can group together. They can group together and they have a way bigger platform to air their grievances about something. And I think institutions were slow, like just across the board and most obviously universities, institutions were slow to catch on to the idea that social media had a lot of power. Yeah. And so... Now they don't you're, know what to do if, with it. If you're the president of Evergreen College <laughs> and the fiasco with Brett Weinstein happens and your lifelong avowed liberal is condemned as a racist KKK, <laughs> never mind that he's Jewish. <laughs> right, right. Um, and all you can do is hold your hands kind of silently and not even 
be allowed to go to the bathroom of your own volition without 19 and 20 year olds yelling at you for your place in holding power and why you should be so ashamed of that and you just capitulate uh that's different like it's different that and maybe it'll well i think it'll change i'm optimistic about this sociologically i think this is the first time i can think of where young people can get presidents of universities to do what they want because they use the right weaponized terms against yeah because everyone's afraid of their job because of how powerful and how negative the pr can be on twitter and social media and that kind of thing and because obviously young people are always going to be more on top of the ball of technology than older people (laughs) will be i think there's been a big generational problem here like that's a different issue i guess than one summer's bringing up where it's like do you think young people are more traumatized now or there's an element of there being a currency in trauma. Yeah, yeah. I think victimhood has become the the new hierarchy. And they, they call it the, uh, what, the oppression Olympics, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. And of course, uh, if that's your standard of social value is how victimized you are, you need things to traumatize you. Mm-hmm. Like you and can't I, <laughs> be a victim without trauma. And it's not that I'm unsympathetic to people's real problems i feel like that's actually what drives my annoyance with the fake ones now what is real what's a fake problem i think that's a case-by-case basis where you really have to go the ins and outs and then make fair-minded contrast to other things but i mean let's just put it out there like we are still in living memory of people who survived and went through world war ii now that's now the privations <laughs> and the desperations and the absolute chaos of a world war and the people who got through it and survived, obviously, but like continued, made a life for themselves. There's a trauma there, right? Or even forget that. Like I have run programs for Syrian refugees who were in the Watch house. the bombs drop. Watch the bombs or like there was one even who was in the house when it got bombed, right? Yeah. It's like, okay, that is very different categorically than a microaggression. Yes. <laughs> right? Yes. Or something like this. You know what it is? I guess I'm realizing this. It's I feel like socially we've lost our sense of proportion for problems. So it's not that it's not a problem, it's just that it's on a continuum and we're not good at figuring out if you were going to put it in the physical world it'd be like saying there's no difference between a pinprick on your thumb and a can- and a cannonball taking your arm yeah, off or yeah, something, yeah, right? Like yeah. since they're both negative impacts on your nervous system they're equally bad in their consequences well that's fucking bullshit yeah (laughs) i would way rather have my finger pricked than lose my arm through uh blunt force trauma and that sense of uh sophistication it's not that it's not there it's that there's no space for it it's that that's what's gets that the the nuance is what gets shouted out in i wonder though like if maybe we're just too close to it like a lot of our world, at least a lot of my world, I think the same with you is like podcasts and and we listen to comedians and and we're all I'm on social media a lot for work. I think the regular masses of humanity are not. They did a study on this, like something like twelve percent of Americans consider themselves like hard left wing, and like ten percent consider themselves hard right wing. Sure. And then there's this massive middle, and I would think even at university. Probably these loudmouth activists who are talking mm. about microaggressions, but most people are just going to university to get their degree. Like I remember when I was doing my master's, I was a lot older than most of the students, 
And I actually found many of them to be quite reasonable. Yeah, no, I that's a fair point, and I think you're right. There's some right of them that, that are just absolutely catastrophically evil, in my opinion, in their crusade mm. of of social justice stuff. And like these are the people that I I would like to see defeated in the culture <laughs> war, perhaps. Yes. But there were people that had very different views than me on mm. almost everything. Right. That I could still smoke a joint with and have a really cool conversation sure, and sure, like sure. build a real friendship with. Yeah, okay. Point taken. Yeah. I will again try to make myself proportional. At least two things I would say in response to that. One is that the loudmouths suck up the oxygen. So yeah, they get the media attention and they get the podcast attention. Yeah. And they get the perspectives of people and they get like that's what makes the news and of course you know when what is it ben shapiro needs however many hundreds of thousands of dollars of security at berkeley because people can't handle the antichrist coming in no (laughs) for sure no i'm not saying it's not an issue i just think that maybe remember when you talk about religion and you say well the worst thing you can do to it is just say it's irrelevant Mm. This is part of that. I think this is part of it. Yeah, maybe. It's just I think I think why <laughs> I self-consciously use the word it triggers me. <laughs> right, right, right. Is because there's so much of this kind of stuff that's fundamentally geared at dismantling free speech and free expression. Yeah, I'm not and I'm not that, saying I don't think that there's danger. And that being the master value I think of a society because it's the value that allows all other values to come out. And it, I think we, it's, we, we history all, shows it doesn't take a lot of people to overturn. See, see, I'm not worried about these people. What I'm worried about is the other side. These people are a minority. They're weak. They they rely on. You mean like the hardcore right wing backlash, like the general public hard wing right right wing yeah, backlash. Yeah, that's like, what I mean. Because the general public is going to let them do play their little games in the universities because mm. there's not that many people in the universities, right. and they're going to let them play their little games. You know probably even in academia yeah like broadly and they'll even let them play their games in like the ngos but when the trains stop running (laughs) then what happens is that people often forget is these are still minorities right and they're loud screeching minorities but what happens when a majority doesn't like a minority anymore yeah. When I, or when a majority well, yeah, that's blames a, blames a minority. Oh yeah, for no, problems. Well, you're totally right. I'm I'm very concerned about that too. I uh, see. I don't think these guys could ever take over. That is just an extra step where you're like, <laughs> we don't want this because of what it will make exactly. the majority do. Exactly. And that point will probably never get through to the hard most hardcore people. No, but we can't the, listen to because them, they right? uh, they kind. I think there's a part of them that wants that. Well, they, right. there's a part of them that wants it because then they feel like because victimization is so important to them, mm, yeah. well, they they actually want to be persecuted. But this is a this is a thing that minorities have everywhere. Like, I right. mean, this is one of the foundational tenets of Christianity is is you know Persecution. you will be persecuted yeah. for, but because it, it it builds a psychological uh, defense. Well, and a psychological superiorism. Yes, exactly. Right, and like that's that, that's like Nietzsche's critique of Christianity is the slave morality. Is well, that and that's what I made think a I'm virtue out of all the things you can't help. Slave but morality only works for so long until the slaves right. start to make everyone <laughs> angry. Angry. Sure. I mean. Okay. Well, yeah, I think we're probably in in fundamental agreement about that. I just. I guess there's also a part of me that's just so sad because the universities and I had such a great university experience academically. I'm sad of the idea that some people wouldn't get that because of 
activists. Oh, I agree. That's that's a kind of a sentimentality I have about the whole thing that that is a bummer. But you're right. That's again a little bit more political or social. Like what if we're going to bring it back to summer again for a second? Like what do we think? What do you think about? I mean, she's obviously Critiquing. making a joke about it in a positive solutions oriented frame of mind. How do you help young people who kind of think they're being traumatized all the time? I guess this is the other weird thing for me is I have never encountered these people in real life. Like I, I know they're on the internet, but like all the young people I know seem to be pretty resilient, pretty resilient and rational. And I meet a lot of them. Like I train them and I work with them and I try to mentor them. And right. I've never really encountered a, uh, a situation where, so I, I guess it's hard for me from a personal perspective, like, they don't seem like they're that Maybe bad. we have to outsource this. The kids are all right, as they say, right? <laughs> yeah, it's true. And it's funny because I don't work with teens very much, but when I do, they use this language a lot, but they don't... I mean, I don't spend a ton of time with teens, so I don't know. Maybe if I spend more time with them. They use a lot of this kind of victimology language, but they don't seem too downtrodden. No, <laughs> You know no. what I mean? Like they they just actually kind have of, a fair bit of confidence. Yeah, and there's a lot of... There's bravado. Things, things that I liked when I was yeah. a teen, like, oh, this kind of music. Right, or these movies, or these video games. So, I don't know. I, I guess we're both a little bit out of our expertise yeah, <laughs> on this sure. kind of thing. And this maybe is, yeah. someone else out there in listener land can educate us a bit more. Don't let our lack of education or knowledge about a subject make you think we will not pontificate about it. We'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll pontificate a, on anything. That's yeah. a really true fiction guarantee. <laughs> Take that to the bank. So let's move on to Beth. I think Beth is... A very interesting person in the show because she is committed to Jerry and then not and then is again. Yeah. And yet she's so clearly kind hearted. Like she cares about her kids. She cares about animals. She's a veterinarian, horse doctor. She wants to save horses. And it's not in, I think it's season three. It seems like her actual biggest fear slash difficulty in life is her relationship with her dad. And pleasing him is very important to her. And yet it's funny because like she spends so much time not being dismissive of Rick, but like kind of asking him to shape up a bit and not ruin Morty's life. (laughs) And yet deeply, she just kind of wants to impress him. Well, there's this weird uh, lack of self-awareness which you see in the Fruity Land episode where she thinks that Rick has just been like sep- like she ha- she's built this narrative in her mind that Rick abandoned her that she just wanted to be around him and he wasn't there and Rick's like well actually you were kind of terrible like you were you were kind of like an evil yeah she's constructed this narrative of her youth in her mind right and Rick like, well, no. don't we all yeah right like yeah, yeah, yeah. I think we we all do we try to we all try to rationalize what has happened to us. And she does that, but like so much of that rationalization, at least in my experience, is just conjecture and not actually built on the facts necessarily. Because I mean, human memory is so poor. Right? We're we're right, actually yeah. really bad at details, mm-hmm. and so she's definitely troubled by a lot of things. But I think what's kind of being expressed in the show is that a lot of the stuff she's troubled with is like stuff we're all kind of. Yeah, and I think maybe she is the best example. I don't know. I mean, it's there's so many 
conversations between all the different characters. It's hard to know who's the best example of this. Maybe they're all the best example, but it strikes me that Beth might be the best example of how what is so great about this show is that there are strengths and weaknesses to everybody and and they're demonstrated, you know? Yeah, and like yeah. she's it's got not just, oh, these are the, it, yeah. it isn't just a character trait. It's we <laughs> see it in action. If we're, I mean, if you put me in this situation, I'm really strong and intelligent and well-spoken and able to handle. And if I'm in this one, some of my insecurities come out and I can't, and it's difficult. And she is very competent in many scenarios and very thoughtful and very smart and, like the anti-Jerry <laughs> yeah. in a lot of yeah. things, like strong and thoughtful and knows how to solve a problem. But, and this is different than Jerry, because Jerry doesn't seem to have any deep problems. He's just a problem. <laughs> like yeah. he is yeah. a problem. Yeah. She has deep problems. She has deep psychological problems. So in that Pickle Rick episode, she lies to herself that Rick became a pickle because he wanted to explore being a pickle, not because he wanted to get out of family counseling. Right, right. And both Morty and Summer are like, Mom, he obviously didn't want to come to family counseling. That's clear there's an end when they're in the therapist's office. She's deflecting from that the whole time, right? Like, no, it's not. We're not, why are we talking about Rick? Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's about my divorce. It's like family counseling. And it's like the things that are most close and dear and important to us that we want to be the least honest about. Because I, I think kinda. it's the most painful, yeah. right? Because self-renovation is hard. There's a reason that they, you know, that I believe it was Confucius said, you know, the greatest warrior is he who conquers himself. Right. There's, yeah. there's a reason for that because mm-hmm. it's not to be trite. Like I get so tired of these motivational posters and all this <laughs> shit where it's like, oh, you, you know, yay you, you conquered yourself. And it's like a bastardization and a commercialization of a good deep point. Right. And I think if we scratch away at all the superficiality, actually being honest with yourself about your position in the world your relative meaninglessness, you know, nobody's here on purpose and nothing matters. <laughs> Unless you're really honest yeah. with yourself about that, you are always going to lie to protect mm-hmm. whatever story you tell yourself to, to have meaning. Yeah, and I guess maybe the deepest point of therapy is to figure out the things you're lying to yourself about. I think... Right, a hundred percent. Right, that's because I mean, uh, even in myself and and some of my best friends who've gone through real like self reflection, awareness building exercises. Right, one of the things that is most common is you have to begin dispelling self lies. <laughs> right, like I had one friend tell me he's like, I really believed that I was the best at everything that I did, and when it mm-hmm. became apparent that there was a thing that I was no longer the best at, I just stopped doing it. So that I could continue telling myself that I was the best at it. Uh, resting on a laurel? Yeah and, yeah. and eventually coming to the realization that a lot of the things that he told himself were lies. Mm, that right. some of them perpetrated by his parents, some of them perpe- like continued by himself. Sure, like sure. and that is I think that's a one of the, arguably that's the first step. <laughs> is yeah. is realizing because then you have to find some truth. <laughs> yeah, good point. Yeah, I mean it's kind of funny with Beth how she's a little bit aware of her own. Like there's a lot of, there's obviously a lot about her that is not in her purview or she's like choosing to keep down and not in her purview, but she knows that it's there. 
<laughs> right? Yeah. Like she she kind of knows that she has all this baggage. She just doesn't want to talk about it or know it or or deal with it. And it's like this line she uses to Jerry, loving you is work, Jerry. I obviously sort of love you. <laughs> or I wouldn't do the work. Yeah. yeah. Like that's a good lip service to it. I like that her and Jerry often take what's going on as an excuse to reflect on their marriage. They do do a lot of marriage reflection, yeah, which is odd, well, considering think, how dysfunctional I they are. I think part of it is because of how important the marriage is to Jerry. Like, that's his whole world. That's, his, that's where he gets everything that matters to him. But weirdly, it's important to her, too. Because I, I love that codependence episode, because it's yeah. just so... Yeah. Ugh. She needs the slug Jerry to worship her. Yes. Because she's afraid that she's not worthy of kind of admiration. I think that's probably well, I a think deep probably thing. she's got daddy issues, I think is a fairly <laughs> yeah. fairly obvious. <laughs> that seems clear. <laughs> yeah, she she needs somebody. She needs to be somebody's everything or cuz she felt like she was Rick's nothing. Yeah. Maybe you matter so little. And right? I right that that line. I love yeah, that. And line. I wonder <laughs> talk about a vista of which I have no <laughs> knowledge about. I wonder what it would feel like as a woman to not even to just be rejected by a guy, but to just the realization when a guy's not into you, right? Like there's that movie. He's just not that into you, right? Now as a male, uh, you can't really (laughs) go very long without feeling what it's like to have a girl not be into you. Like that's a pretty common (laughs) occurrence. That's a pretty common occurrence. (laughs) And honestly, part of maturity, I think for males is straight males is, figuring that out and like being fine with it and realize and like not taking it too personally yes either yeah yeah i wonder what that's like for women i think it's pretty bad i i i guess i would want someone to tell me because <laughs> again like this is just a a vista of human knowledge i'm not privy to by firsthand experience right and i haven't spent a lot of time talking about but it does seem to me like beth has a terror of no one being that into her if Jerry is out of the picture. Yeah, like she and, needs Jerry because at yeah. least that she knows that he worships her. <laughs> yeah. Right? And now it's interesting in season three when she does take that step where it's, well, but it's because Jerry gives her an ultimatum, right? He says, either me or Rick. And she, pick, she picks, and she picks Rick. Rick. So her desire to be in relationship with her father is, it seems, greater than her desire to be worshipped, which is I don't know if the word healthy is exactly right in this scenario, but it seems more healthy than well. Also, ultimatums and relationships are bullshit. Oh yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, yeah. Like, no negotiation. Let's figure this out. Yeah. But then in season four, he comes back, and it's kind of funny <laughs> how that all works out. Yeah. So yeah, I guess um, it would be, you know, what I said twenty minutes ago. Notwithstanding, this is not exactly an area I feel comfortable pontificating on <laughs> because it is yeah, really I don't far have... out of my like. I mean, I guess if I was to, because I've, I've what what is a female fear here of not rejection exactly, but just not being someone's focus. Here's what I think it is. If I had to put my finger on it, having experienced sure. this with a few cases in my own life where I did do that, and there an obsession began. On like you part, did, where I was just like, "Nah, I don't really want to be with you." Oh, I see. Okay, uh, to a girl, right? In my experience there, I think. It's the same for both men and women to this degree, which is we want what we can't have. And because it's so much easier for women to get when suddenly there's something they can't have, they're like, well, what's special about this person? Like, why is this person able to say no to me when most haven't been able to? And like, because they're used to being 
the the choosing like the, the sure. sex that yeah, makes the decision choosy decision makers i don't know yeah what do you want to call it i think they're like gatekeepers i think we've used before but the truth of the matter is they don't really want it to be easy like to win the guy over sure they they want that challenge just like men do like, yeah yeah that's true i mean yeah we've talked about before how uh men are such hypocrites in that they want a woman to sleep with them right away but <laughs> if a woman sleeps with them right away they're way less likely to actually want to be in a relationship yeah. with them yeah. <laughs> because men are such shitheads <laughs> so i think there's probably biological or evolutionary reasons for that but i think it's overcomable through conscious reflection yes well yeah. as with i would hope yeah. most things if I'm, we were stuck in our animal natures we'd be fucked yeah for sure well five percent of the males would be right <laughs> and all the bit all us betas all would us be <laughs> would just be angry outsiders trying to anyway yeah it, i guess it's because it's easier it's it's maybe more weird or confronting which is what i was saying when i was saying uh, like men get rejected all the time so they're they're just way more accustomed to it so maybe it is more in your face if it happens to a woman or more devastating let's say to your confidence or your psychological makeup but what's so unhealthy i guess about beth is that she's like pre-assuming that will be the case right like she's assuming that if she's not with jerry no one will be interested in her not even that it won't be like the 25 year old surfer hunk who's has zero percent body fat but nobody nobody, right and i think that that is a i guess like every kind of deep problem in the human condition that's just a failure of imagination (laughs) right like there's so many limiting there's so many different types of guys out there in the world that she could be interested in and who could be interested in her that i i just i kind of feel sad i guess for someone like beth who was like kind of assuming herself to be in that position before she's even tried it out right and i think that that is actually a much broader observation about humanity is that i think a lot of people's problems come from their assumptions about what they can or can't do or or will or won't be and so they don't even try it yeah you know like that's again a truism but once you go through the description of it it doesn't feel that trite you know because it's really affecting beth very deeply well it's kind of running her life (laughs) yeah because it's well you will almost certainly think this and i do think that she shouldn't like she's she's too good for jerry yes there is she shouldn't be with jerry she shouldn't be with jerry because jerry is just a soul sucker now again i feel a little bit bad because jerry's so pathetic but then i know that jerry's being so pathetic so i will feel bad and in fact he's so pathetic he can't even connive to be pathetic which is even worse but then i feel a little bit bad for him again because he's not even smart enough to figure out how to be pathetic enough to contrive to my sensibilities so it's like i actually don't even understand how jerry's still alive that's really yeah, my final analysis. We got, like, we got how did there. you make it to this age? It's I actually be... somewhat impressive. <laughs> yeah, and then I'm impressed. By <laughs> so oh, anyway, no. his the circle is bad. So, like, well, I think we talked about it last time. I actually don't think someone like Jerry could exist. No, well, just like someone like Rick, Rick couldn't. couldn't exist, yeah. but someone like Beth could. Yes, right. And I feel so sad for someone like Beth who can't. Who she can't seem to quite articulate her own value and so then 
just defaults to being valuable through Jerry's eyes, and then she's okay, right? Like that's a that's. But she okay also kind of hates herself for well, like yeah. wanting Jerry's love. Because well, this Jerry. is why it's unsustainable. Yeah. Right. <laughs> that, yeah. No. Like the love of a slug can't sustain you over time because. I mean, the whole problem with that codependency, well, not the whole problem, but one of the glaring issues of that codependency episode is how unequal the two versions of Jerry and Beth are in each other's eyes, right? Like, Beth is this ultra-alpha female predator, and Jerry is this stupid little slug. And, like, it doesn't work because of how disparate they are. And, I mean, it's a counseling episode, so maybe there isn't, but if you could imagine a functioning, healthy relationship it would be something like the imagination of the other person in the mind, like in, so if, if Jerry and Beth had a healthy relationship, Jerry's imagination of Beth and Beth's imagination of Jerry would actually be very kind of similar. Yeah. And they would be who they actually are, to who they actually are. And there'd be a functionality to their relationship that didn't depend on dominance and submission. Yes. (laughs) Right. It'd be a very, be much more reciprocal. And that's clearly that like there's, I mean, only in the loosest sense of the term, can you say that they're reciprocal? Yeah. (laughs) In that very loose sense of the term. But they're feeding a really negative side of each other. So they're living off dying tissue instead of regenerative tissue of relationships. And I think that that's kind of sad for Beth. I don't know. Like maybe, maybe she'll have an arc. Yeah, or a, or a we, redemption or something bigger. Like we don't bigger. know what's going to happen. Yeah. Here's something. So it's the episode where the giant head... It's the Get Swifty episode, and we're probably going to talk about that episode a couple times yeah. here in the next little bit. The big episode, the big heads come, a new religion starts in this town, and she has the line, how is praying going to help? <laughs> I just made the note, well said. <laughs> but here's here's the interesting one. If you imagine not just a religion, but like any society that's becoming more dogmatic about something. She says, we should pack up and leave now. And this is when the new, you know, the new religion or town. And I'm like, the rationalist will be killed early. Right. <laughs> right? Because the rationalist is the first person to point out the inconsistencies. Well, of that's the why Mao killed all the mm-hmm. academics. Was, yeah. Because he didn't want anyone thinking against his. Yeah. Orthodoxy. I mean, that, that's, again, we don't have to spend a lot of time on that specific part of this. And we'll talk about that episode more in the show part because I think it's one of the most important episodes or interesting and insightful and socially critiquing episodes of the whole show. But thought, at least the most socially critiquing of an issue you care a lot about. <laughs> <laughs> True. But I would submit that religion has been the issue that has been cared about the most in By history. People. Yeah. Yeah. In, in, yeah. So. Agreed. <laughs> <laughs> Which is part of why I care about it. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Here's something that I think is really interesting, and I want to... We've mentioned it a bit before. So it's the episode where they are... Can't remember what's called, but they're imagining so many memories, and then the memories make people show up in the right. house, and then they're having trouble remembering oh, who's well, real. Because, yeah, because there's some, like... Virus. Parasitic. Yeah, yeah, parasite, right? Like, but it's like... um feeds off brain waves yep. yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and then creates but you can never remember a bad memory <laughs> yeah exactly about, yeah so the real memories are the bad memories so that like there's just this proliferation of characters who show up in the house and none of the real quote-unquote characters can know which is which except that they kind of only the ones they have negative memories with are real because the parasite can't fake bad memories yeah. i guess or, yeah, or idea, it's, it's not doesn't like, part of its mo yeah. right 
And so Beth says to someone, I can't remember who, yeah, but you're real. <laughs> so there's like a essence or a reality to them. And the foibles make people real. And I remember, I think it was Star Wars, we talked about how we love people for their virtues, but we like them for their vices. Yeah, it's the little things that we know about them. Yeah. That, and I that think make them like rounded out. Yeah. And I think that mind. there's a something really important to this. There's an example I want to bring up too in contrast that I think makes it even more clear is that I think we like vices in other people because it reminds us that in some like really macro sense, we're all kind of the same and that all kind of the sameness adds empathy and sympathy and love and compassion because there are moments where you'll be down and you'll need me in the yeah, same way that right. there'll be moments that I'm down and I need you. And there's something in that long-term reciprocity of bad decision-making and vices that I think actually endears people <laughs> to other people in yes. a really weird yes. way. And so I remember I listened to our Star Wars episode not so long ago with my sister. It made me think of the example of Dr. Manhattan from Watchmen. And he is an actual example of an omniscience and an yes. omnipotence, yeah. right? Like he is a god, but he was a person. So he has, you know, he's a hominid. Yeah, <laughs> he's yeah. biped. He kind of looks like a person even when he's completely blue. And he's, everybody kind of, they say they care about him. They want him to do everything for him. But you know what you notice? He doesn't have any friends, right? How like can you? No one likes him because he's too perfect. He and knows, too powerful. He knows what everyone's going to say. He knows what they're going to do. Time means nothing to him. So there is no uncertainty in the future. There's no randomness in the system. So he's like 100% deterministic. So you can't joke around because he's going he's gonna, to, and he, and he can't, have the right social cues to not point out that you're going to joke around. Right? right like it's right. just, so it's like, that's such a smart adaptation of the opposite of that, where there's no way you can like Dr. Manhattan as a friend because there's no problems with him. Right. Right. <laughs> do you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. So I, I don't know. I was thinking, I mean, one day we'll probably do Watchmen, but I was just like, that's such a funny thing about people. Hey, is that, is that we kind of like we don't, their foibles. We don't want people... We want people to be better, but we don't want them to be perfect. No, because <laughs> we kind of hate perfect Yeah, people. and then it's a bit of a mirror, right? <laughs> right. So there's like there's the ego part of it, but I actually think... And I would be interested like if there's a biochemical element here, like you bond more. I, I have noticed that I bond with people in moments where they're having difficulty because right. their guards are down a bit. Yeah. They're a little bit more human, right? Yeah, they're not trying to... When they've had a bad day. They're not putting day. on a show. Yeah. yeah. When something's not going well for them at work or they're in a difficult really, situation. Really, that's when you need other people yeah. too, right? Yeah. 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 That's and that's point. like, that's kind of moments I've fallen more in love with people is when they're showing their mistakes or their foibles. Or right. Their or their, yeah. Mess ups. Now, it's not, if, it's not like they fuck up and then they're an asshole about it. That's not when it happens. But no. It's just that, oh, yeah. You can be beaten down, and I can be someone here for you. Yeah, yeah, which is yeah, I, I like that a lot. That's a good reflection on the on that thing that we talked about. Yeah, with vices. yeah. So that's just that whole episode of the a negative memory making it feel like you're real that Beth notices. I really loved, you know. Okay, here's something interesting. She wants the prosthetic dick instead of Jerry's actual dick, but really, it's just because she wants to Jerry to admit that he wants his dick and not to weasel out. Because right? she's tired of, because that's what he does. Yeah, he he's weaseling everything. Out. Yeah, 
<laughs> I just uh, thought that was funny because that that is an example of her strength. Yes, <laughs> right? yes. it's like no, actually admit to your own shittiness here, <laughs> yeah. Jerry. And Jerry's like no. <laughs> so that's just funny. Okay, here's just a funny call. This is a cultural thing again, but there's a Sophie's Choice given to her between Rick and Morty. And you know Sophie's Choice is that movie with Meryl Streep where she had to pick her son or her daughter or the Nazis would kill both of them. Yes, yes. You know? It's just funny because, like, it's not an easy... Obviously, it's not easy decision. No, <laughs> right? no. Meryl Streep just, like, she goes through a lot. Beth, immediately, I choose Summer. <laughs> <laughs> just no second thoughts about it. More example of Beth's strength. She lowers herself to make Summer feel better in the inside out episode right where it's like yeah the way that's beth comforts summer is to make herself be in the exact same situation right yeah <laughs> such yeah. a bizarre like blah, 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 blah. <laughs> but i thought that was beautiful it was like that's a parent or, or that's a mentor that's someone who shows that they care about you by lowering themselves instead of making you feel bad for being lower right you yeah know? bringing yeah so that's something she does that i liked and then i guess though like in the positive sense if we're going to use beth finally as a as a kind of warning i guess is that she and rick don't start figuring out their problems till they're adults like well into adulthood right right and i feel like that's a good warning i was like well no that that parent to child relationship i think should be a little bit more ongoing and monitored maybe while they're still young or even like in their early 20s you know yeah before their parents and and I hope that's what Beth is doing at her best moments with Summer and Morty. Yeah. And I feel like she is because if we're going to like put the best possible spin on it, she sees how hard it's been for her with her dad. And so that's a warning, I guess. Yeah. You know? And so I feel kind of bad for her about that. But I guess if we want to interpret Beth in the best possible light, which of course <laughs> I always want to do because that's my disposition is that she's learning about her, mistakes and rick's mistakes to not compound those mistakes with her own kids which i don't know if she really figures any of that out i don't see her as a particularly good parent no you don't think she's got a no. you don't think she cares about morty and well, summer caring is not my rubric for a good parenting i wouldn't say well then how do you think she's failing summer and morty i think she's she's overly consumed with her own shit Pretty much through the whole show. And everything's about Beth. Right. Not a lot about Morty and So Summer. you don't see a kind of growth in her in the later seasons? A little bit, but I mean, I think that's part of the trope too, is that mm, maybe she's a bit of a mess. Sure. Well, maybe this is the kind of thing that uh, we'll see development on. Yeah, hopefully. If there's more seasons. I guess we'll see. Yeah. yeah. Because I think, well, even if it's not what Beth does, this is like the idea yeah <laughs> right? it's like yeah, well that's the idea don't that we let want. don't let your childhood become destiny for somebody else's childhood yes right yeah i think it's like my dad always said i've i've taken it this far mm -hmm. it's your job to take it further right right and that and in that case he's talking about relationship with mm -hmm. kids sure hey everybody Dave and I just want to take a second to say thank you for listening. Making this podcast has been a great experience, and we really appreciate all of you who choose to spend some time with us. Part of our goal is to be super open about everything we talk about on the podcast. If you have any questions, concerns, thoughts, ideas, feedback, clarifications, or praise, please send us an email at reallytruefiction at gmail.com. 
We would love to hear from you. Also, if you get your podcasts on iTunes or Spotify, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you get notified when a new episode is released. If you feel so inclined, please leave a rating or review on iTunes. That is a really good way to help new listeners find the show. And please pass the show along to anyone who you think may enjoy it. Again, thank you so much for listening, because as I'm sure you have gathered, we love talking. All right, now I kind of want us to foray a bit into some of the auxiliary characters of the show that either make an appearance uh, in a very strong one or a recurring appearance. So the first one that I noticed is Scary Terry, the uh, 80s knockoff of Freddy Krueger from Nightmare on Elm Street. And what I liked about that is that he actually changes. He changes his tune, and it's when Rick and Morty make him feel good about himself. Right. So I think the lesson on him is, uh, I guess, get to know monsters. Because <laughs> you never know. You never know if you can save if them. If you can save them. Oh, okay. <laughs> and I, I like that. Yeah. And so That's that was good. my scary Terry <laughs> thought. That is a good episode, too. It's when so they keep, good. Like, yeah. I, lo- I love how tropey. I, 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 maybe it, it says something about me, but I love how tropey Rick and Morty is. Totally, like, yeah. Like, they go into the Inception thing, and they just embrace it. Yeah, like, <laughs> yeah. And they're just in it. Yeah. It's like, okay, well, I'm not going to quibble too much with the rules of the universe now. No, it's going to solve the problem. Yeah. <laughs> and very creatively, hey? Yeah. Because it's, it's like almost, the Rick and Morty trope is almost to ignore tropes. Yeah, like it's like, well, it's like do the heist it so one, differently. Right? It's like, oh, we're gonna make fun of this and and <laughs> ask interesting questions while we do it, and yet still at the end, it's as it were Rick incepting an idea into Morty's yeah. mind, yeah, which is like the heist backing up a hundred degrees, whatever. Uh, Snuffles, the dog from season two oh, or yes. from the second episode ever, where Rick makes Snuffles smart because Jerry wanted him to be smarter for not peeing on the rug. So Snuffles becomes basically like a super genius. A super genius takes over the world. And so I thought this is an interesting meditation on speciesism and our taken for granted ethics with animals because this is a very topical concern and interesting. Uh, there's two parts. There's the speciesism of Jerry thinking he's better than the dog <laughs> because the dog pees on a rug, and so. Careful, don't pull on that thread, Jerry. Yeah, yeah. where does that go? But then Snuffles also doesn't kill humanity because Morty was kind to him, you know? And he loves Morty. Mm -hmm. So I thought Snuffles was an interesting character. Yeah. I I think um, it also reflects reflects on our relationship with our pets Mm -hmm. in a very interesting way. Yeah. By A, making fun of how much money we spend on our pets. (laughs) Yeah. But be saying, really, are we treating them appropriately? Right. Like, yeah. 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 No, and I mean, I remember one time, like a trope in a movie is you know a villain by how what they do to their dog. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. If a, if someone kicks a dog or is mean to a then dog, you know they're the they're bad awful. guy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it's like a way of psychologically priming people. And I was like, yeah, I think there's something, there's something there that I quite. I don't know enough about, but that was interesting with Snuffles. So we have to talk about the Meeseeks a little bit. Right, right. <laughs> I thought they're a total encapsulation of Rick and Morty humor. Even just the sound of their voices is such a Rick and Morty <laughs> style of joke, isn't it? But I liked this part where they say, having a family doesn't mean you aren't an individual. Right. And I thought this is the kind of advice you might give yourself if you weren't you. So I've always like operated under the idea of like, well, what if I wasn't me, what advice would I give? 
Like if I was a friend and I was going through this problem, what advice would I give? Because there's like, I think Sam Harris talks about a huge part of wisdom is just being able to take your own advice. <laughs> right. <laughs> it applies to your life. But you have to actually like turn <laughs> it around. Have to feel the yeah. experience of it. There's two parts. So I just want to talk about this. Like having a fat, being a part of family doesn't mean you aren't an individual. Because I think that that's kind of part of what the Smith family is struggling with. <laughs> Right, it's because they're it's the because of, of, and I think arguably because of Jerry and Beth's codependency. Right, it really plays into their mm-hmm. whole family. Not, it has to be a unit because yeah. if there were individuals, yeah, then, yeah, yeah, good point. Well, I mean, if particularly Jerry was an individual, mm-hmm. then he wouldn't survive, as we've already pointed out. Well, and I think that there's an art into finding how to remain interested in your own endeavors while you have a responsibility of a family, and it's probably a lot harder when your kids are little, but as they're growing, I think expanding that i think that's most the most commonly fail the most common failing Mm. particularly of fathers i think is that they they really struggle to to do that balance of being there for their kids but also pursuing whatever it is even the career that's sustaining their children (laughs) right like that's the hard part right is uh, as parents it's not just you can't only think about the family side of things. You have to mm. think, well, how do I keep them clothed yeah. and fed and yeah, maybe yeah, yeah. even send them to university, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, good point. Yeah, I guess it's hard, but it's something worth thinking about and remembering. And then they try to kill Jerry <laughs> because Jerry wants the Meeseeks to help him yes. improve his golf swing. By two strokes. By two strokes. And they can't do it because they just he and, can't and, improve. And they don't want to continue existing. <laughs> yeah. So like, there's like, there's a, oh yeah, they have that line. We're not born into this world to find meaning, <laughs> which is a hilarious take on like the anti-person. Yes. Right? Because yeah. it's the person has to find meaning. The Meeseeks doesn't want no, it. No, they're it's like, too they're much like we've them. been here way too long. And then they Meeseeks get so many other Meeseeks out of the box to help them find and save Jerry. It's so funny. And then they decide that the only way that they can help Jerry's golf swing is to kill him. Right. <laughs> because that's the only thing I'll make it better and then they can disappear because they've done their job. And this is kind of funny because it reminds me of the paperclip idea from Nick Bostrom, the AI philosopher, scientist. Right, where, where all it does is end up making paperclips. Yeah, and where it's like if you task, if you don't properly task a AI, it could get off the rails, not through malice, but just a, a, a non- non-ability to interpret the desires of the people around it yeah. right because of how how short-sighted our becomes, own mission yeah. becomes right so it's like if you task ai to make as many paper clips as possible maybe it starts taking the iron out of every person's blood <laughs> to or, make yeah, or, such or you take yeah. every use every atom, atom in the universe to yeah address, including yeah. the people and so and then it's maximized its paperclip output and i just thought it was like i don't know if Justin Roiland and Dan Harmon are familiar with that argument, but I would be very surprised if they weren't. Oh, actually, I'm almost positive because they are, they're yeah. so up on AI and all that sci-fi well, stuff. So. Elon loves them and talks yeah. to them. Yeah, and yeah, he's yeah. big on that, right? This could be a passing. I thought it was so funny the part where the jelly bean tries to rape Morty <laughs> in uh, the world, and then Morty kills him. <laughs> I just, yeah, that, that kills him at the end. Like that's just I. You know what? That's there. I think so that. It, it's just it's supposed to be a shock value humor but also maybe a little bit of thought on like how a lot of monsters can just be in such sheep's clothing mm-hmm. you know like that's an old fable too yes. but. principal vagina <laughs> don't let the name fool you i'm very much in charge <laughs> which is like <laughs> all kinds so, of sexism yeah. and but i think it's a joke riffing oh, on yeah. a, an assumption right? yes yes all hail the giant head in the sky And so this is kind of where I wanted to talk about that episode because he becomes the merchant 
of a religion. And one of his lines is, you're not allowed to interpret the wills of the heads. <laughs> Only right, I which am. they say, yeah. And then at the end, in the episode, he is killed by the idiocy that he initiated. So there's a lot going on here because the giant heads come, show us what you've got. Rick realizes they want to see music, probably. Morty figures that out too. They're engaged in that. Everyone else in the town is like, I'm a, I'm going to go worship the thing that's in the sky. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And then Principal Vagina kind of becomes the head priest. They start putting to death by tying people to balloons, anyone who's a heretic or yeah. a blasphemer. And at the end of the episode, it's Principal Vagina who's, who's the blasphemer, who's the blasphemer yeah. and put up. So you die by the sword you sharpen. Yeah, yeah well, you know, when it, live when by the sword, dogma, die by right? the sword, right? And so, I don't know, do you, um, what are your thoughts on that episode and him in it? Maybe more specifically him in it, because I think he's, it's a parody, obviously, he's being parodied. The only time they even really care to know anything about the heads is their arrival, and then they just make an entire doctrine. Really, yeah. <laughs> I think there's a, there's a false catharsis uh, here. Mm. Uh, and this happens all the time in literature and in movies and stuff. So I guess something that I'd like to address is often they give us uh, relief, like and they and they they hurt the people we don't like, right? Yes, yeah, right. Like, yeah. So this guy, he's the leader of the religion, and then the religion turns on him, and we're all like, ah ha ha! Look yeah. at you know, foiled by your own. That doesn't happen that much. No, like you don't think so? Like no, I don't people think get so. taken out by the things that they they render. No, I don't think it happens that much. Mm. Like you, you look at how power works. You look at how society works, class, right? Like those exceptions excite us because they feed a part of us. But realistically, how many popes have been deposed? <laughs> Not very many, right? So it's uh, you. You're saying you think it's something in culture to make us feel better. I think it's an opium of the masses. Oh, okay, right? Interesting. Like. How many cardinals, you know, stop being cardinals? Right. How many megachurch pastors go down? Well, we love to talk about the ones who do, mm. but there's a lot of megachurches. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, you're probably right. I, I mean, I think that there's something kind of unsustainable, anyway, about a system of thought that can depend on accusation as conviction. Well, as we see in our you know? Crucible ac- episode, right. right? There's There's that element of it, but I mean... During the Inquisition, the Inquisitors mm. never suffered, right? They, well, I don't know. I mean, I don't well, know Well, so, some maybe did, but right. like generally it's the power structure that's in place right. that's implementing these things that is the, is the power structure. Interesting. And they yeah. usually, I mean, let's go back to our Crucible. Like the power structure kind of lose, loses control, but they're not the ones that suffer. Yeah. Yeah. Right? All right. That's a good take. I hadn't thought about that, but well said <laughs> but that line i love too you're not allowed to interpret the will of the heads well it's I like know. This that's is too so, easy well but that's it's too easy but it's so common yeah right it's like yeah, well yeah. you don't actually know or like it's an argument from authority mm-hmm. right and i mean i i guess i just think like if you look at it macro level those societies unless they can stay insular they're going to deteriorate and it's really hard for society to stay insular now there's like some modern day versions i guess like hardcore amish or mennonite communities but you even see what's happening to them in the biological degeneration of a lot of the diseases right and and when that happens 
And so I just like the satire here. Yeah. <laughs> I guess I really no, enjoy no, it. No, it is very good. It's so on the nose because <laughs> the joke is at no point throughout the rest of the show does Principal Vagina care at all about what the heads are doing. No. <laughs> right? yeah, the heads it's don't like even exist the, in his mind. The, as it were, the fountain head <laughs> is long gone. Yes. And it's just the rules and the dogma and the uh, power. You know, it's, right. it's so bald faced. It's funny. <laughs> yeah, I agree. This is just funny. The devil says, this is the best weekend I've had since Salem. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the gear man, the guy who tells stories people aren't interested in. Ooh, and these people, <laughs> these people are at parties. They're all some the time. of the people that I like feel the worst for. Totally, because they just have they're mm-hmm. they're they're interested in things, they're passionate about things, but they haven't learned the social cues no. of you know what? Some when people to stop. Yeah, just aren't interested in that. Aren't thing interested. That you're, interested in. you're not noticing that, and then it becomes kind of rude almost to do that to people but you're so the lack of self-awareness means that you, you're not actually being rude yeah. because you're being rude but you're, you don't realize you're being rude oh mm-hmm. those i feel so and sorry it's, for and people. i do feel sorry because i guess they because i i notice sometimes i ramble about something i care about and i, I can see when eyes are glazing a bit and i'm like yeah look, look sorry i'm rambling yeah. i know i just care about it thanks for listening yeah you know it's like paying homage to that is like kind of apologizing well, there's this. And um, then people will have listen you noticed later. this tendency uh, online, or in a, and and people will say, "Never apologize for being pat for being passionate about something." Right. I think that's bullshit. <laughs> like, don't bore people. Right. Right. Yes. Like, if you should not, apologize for being boring. Yes, you should. <laughs> well, and you should apologize for like, maybe I'm really into something, and I am into a lot of things that a lot of people just do not give two shits about or and like because i think the a better version of that is taking what you're passionate about and making something or creating something and then finding the people in the market interested not just soliciting the ear holes of anyone around you (laughs) for whatever it is you want to do let people access it how they want to but don't force it exactly yeah and gear man can't know that what is it adolf raham or abradolf linkler I forget his first name. Right. But Linkler. Linkler, The the, the, uh, The, the Lincoln-Hitler hybrid. And and it's just, he's tortured by his duality of being. (laughs) That's like, that's funny. (laughs) Bird person. Interpreting Wubba Lubba Dub Dub. I am in deep pain. Please help me. And I loved, I love Bird person because he reminds Morty of what Rick is capable of. So Bird person is actually, because we see him at the end of season one for the first time. He's the character that contextualizes Rick a lot for Morty. And I love that role of the person in life who can be like a third party, more dispassionate observation of a more intense twosome relationship. Yeah, I love that because so and and so often those people are so invaluable to have in your life. I often say, you know, it's okay to have enemies, but you better have a lot of friends. (laughs) Yeah, Um, because, you know, if you have enemies, they're going to be saying things about mm-hmm. you to other people, right. like negatively. And if you don't have anyone who will say, actually, you don't really understand that person and here's why, or actually you're wrong about that person, right? then that just becomes the prevalent narrative about your life. Mm-hmm. And kind of bird person is like, you don't really understand everything that Rick, <laughs> like you've been on some adventures with yeah. him. Like yeah. I've been in wars with him. Right? Yeah. And I mean, well, you've said before, it's hard to hate what you know Mm -hmm. and the invaluable nature of people who can teach you more about someone, you know, like it's just, well, that's kind of interesting. Those are the best friends because they can teach you about yourself. Well, and you can imagine too, like when people 
tell you stories about the stuff your parents did when they were younger or before you were born. Like that's fascinating, you know, because it's yeah. just maybe parents are a special case, but they just play a role in your life where you, <laughs> in a way you just don't really care about them before you. <laughs> no, <laughs> like how no. can you in one sense? <laughs> You're so dependent on them. And then you just, it's like a completely different person. And yet when like, obviously they lived for a long time before you were born and they had a whole life. And, and sometimes I think about that as potentially a future parent myself is that, some of the people I'm going to care the most about aren't even born yet. Yeah, they're not even around. <laughs> That's kind of crazy. Yeah, it is a crazy yeah. thought to think about. But just, yeah, that I think the the contextualizer, and there's something about Bird Person's personality. Like he's kind of slow and methodical and he's not, like he's he's not against having fun, but he's, he's, a, he's the right kind of serious, yeah. I think, you know? Yeah. And I like that, that he's the right contextualizer for Morty in that. Okay, the giant heads. So the actual things that people are worshiping in that episode. They're very cruel and hedonistic, and they don't care at all what the people worshiping them are doing to propitiate them. And I was like, this is a much more realistic take on what a deity would be. Right, they just give (laughs) give a shit. Because one of my major critiques, and it's not mine, it's like (laughs) mine. Like, this goes back to Aristotle. I think I mentioned before on one episode, like, if there was an entity that actually possessed things like omnipotence and i mean the giant heads aren't exactly omnipotent but they're much like they're so much stronger than people that it might as well be. yeah they're you know they're <laughs> it's that you know sufficiently advanced yeah indistinguishable <laughs> from magic yeah that you know, what would you care and i mean it's like in a sense the comparison is i mean an answer very developed like I, like how can i care what microbes are doing well yeah well i think <laughs> you know? um so there's a game called Exalted. It's a role-playing game, kind of very different in its mechanics than Dungeons and Dragons, but essentially right. the same premise, which okay. is you know you you imagine your characters and you go through scenarios sure, and sure. things like that. But the, the the mythology around it's really well developed, and there's the kind of the three levels of gods. There's mm. the 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 primordials, right? Who are kind of the ever-existing foundation of being, and then there's the gods, and the gods overthrow the primordials, oh. and then the gods are obsessed with what's playing, like with playing this game, the game of the games of divinity, ah. and so they don't really care about creation at all anymore. So they <laughs> they they basically subcontracted to these like demigods. Uh. <laughs> and it's like a bureaucracy. I, I, yeah, it's, oh, it's hilarious. Bureaucracy of gods. If anyone who's interested in that kind of storytelling uh i played for about four or five years with a good friend named fraser who was our dm but uh had a whole an awesome character it's just a lot of fun but one of the things that that mythology always made me think of is like why do we think the gods care about us and i think a lot of it comes down to that david foster wallace idea of of you know, all of our lived experience, we are mm. the center of everything. Yeah. And so it's very easy to project oh, yeah. that, that conception of reality onto the universe. And I think there's, um, in a historical sense, the gods provided an explanation for phenomenon in the world that there wasn't any explanation for. Yeah, which I think, you know? I mean, we want to know. Yes. As humans, yeah. we want an answer to our questions. Well, we're, uh, as it, we're, we're pattern-seeking mammals. Yes, exactly. We've, <laughs> and we've, it's we've, important. We've ripped we, on we, that forever. We so. need to find patterns yes. because oh. actually the patterns keep us alive. Yes. Oh, no. Like, <laughs> I don't think the pattern-seeking is bad. Yeah. And I mean, there's obviously interesting debates here in evolution and biology of like, well, are these pattern-seeking things that we 
construct entities out of are they a feature or a bug you know and all it's like interesting but yeah i liked the giant heads because they're like if you actually think about how big the universe is and the multiverse in rick and morty like what what would you yeah play a song i like yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh zeep the guy who creates his own miniverse in the miniverse oh, that yes yes um yes. Rick makes. He's a bit of an asshole too, but I wanted to make the point here that innovation is to be competed with, not snuffed out. So, which is I, kind of what Rick does. Well, I Rick initially, well, initially wants to snuff, snuff it out, out yeah. but I get frustrated with the notion of harassing a good idea because it's going to make you appear to be the one who didn't have the good idea. You know, like I'm much more an advocate of okay, if you're in a field and someone else does something that is kind of within what you should be doing, instead of harassing that person or harassing that idea or trying to snuff it out to save your own ego, no, go take the next step in that endeavor. Right. <laughs> right? Like continue the creative process. And I don't think this is utopian. Like this is how competition in a free market is supposed to work. Right? Yeah. <laughs> like this is actually how capitalism is supposed, supposed to work. To make you better because to, you yeah. have to be better to survive. Exactly. And this was like Jonathan Haidt talked about how the two stories of capitalism. And he's like, I've never, people say capitalism is all about competition. I've never seen people work together better than under capitalism yes. yeah. because yeah. of the desire to innovate in the field. And yes, you're competing against maybe another company, but if you can. Make it as fair as possible. And it's yeah. not perfect because humans are not perfect. But to make our systems as fair as possible to, for innovation, it's the responsibility then of, I think, the individual to not be threatened by yes. an innovation in their field, but yeah. to try and enjoy it almost. Like the, like find the aesthetic beauty of something. Someone's like, maybe Rick could learn something from Zeep, right? Zeep obviously learned, <laughs> I mean, indirectly learned from Rick. Yeah. But I like that idea of don't fight it, just improve it. Yeah. Because the world is so interesting. I and mean, maybe that's the heuristic I'm talking about. It's like, I think people innovate not because they want glory. I think the best innovations don't come from glory. They come from curiosity about how the world could be. Well, and the interesting thing about that episode is it's all about actually improving people's lives in order to gain like, yeah. significance, right? So yeah. it's like you've got all these people that are creating power. It's like, well, we can do this easier. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's such a lie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's why. But that's why Zeep and Rick are kind of villains in yeah. that episode. They're just fighting each other. And yes. then, and then you see like the metaphor there. They they're back to sticks and stones fighting. Yes, because they can't agree to figure out how to compromise their own egos a little bit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's a good insight there. Um, the Vindicators write their own press releases. <laughs> So they're self-aggrandizing. And I love that episode, just how Rick oh. is roasting them so hard. <laughs> and then the last auxiliary character is the dragon from season four, I think. And he has to actually do what Morty wants. And his line is, your lessers will hunt you down and you will be slain if you let them. Right. You know, and I like that. It's like, it's true. don't be afraid of your own greatness and don't let people hold it against you. Right, like know what you're good at and be proud of it, not in a prideful way, but in a confident way. Yeah, <laughs> and that's yeah. The... So those are all the auxiliary characters I made notes about. Did you have any other auxiliary characters that have struck you throughout the run? Maybe Mr. Poopy Butthole. I was gonna say Mr. Poopy Butthole, but like, not really. Like, yeah, he doesn't stand. I just like the name. There is a funny part where once he's introduced into that one episode, because he's also apparently alive. 
like yes, a real and character they and they get shot by Beth. <laughs> in that season, the intro scene with Cthulhu flying yes. at the ship, he's in the ship yeah. with yeah. So I love that meta part of it where they've just included Mr. Yes. Booby Butthole well, like, and you have to it, notice it. Yeah, but you, yeah, you just don't, yeah, yeah. So anyway, before we kind of wrap up with the show motifs themselves, I just made a note of, I, I started making notes on all the great cultural references and then I had a little thought about a cultural reference I wanted to bring up with you. So there's a scene where they're in the desert doing science and I was yep. like, this is a Breaking Bad yeah, reference. For sure, yeah. There are several Back to the Future references Times. and even just the Rick and Morty characters are, they seem modeled on Doc and Marty. Yeah. And... We're going to do Back to the Future in the not-too-distant future ourselves. So uh, I guess all our episodes kind of tie together that way. <laughs> There's one, The Scientist, formerly known as Rick, which is a great Prince yes. reference. Yeah, uh, Schrodinger's cat in the Uncertainty episode is so smart. <laughs> um, in the Unity one, they make the body snatchers noise from yeah. the movie Invasion yeah. of the Body mm. Snatchers. Who would have suspected Coach Ferratu? Which is a nod to the, I think, 1920s film Nosferatu, one of the most famous movies about vampires. (laughs) They talk about a mannequin leg in one of the episodes, which is a nod to the movie A Christmas Story, which is... I feel like there's so many nods. Like, like, I mean, they do the Inception thing, there's... They talk explicitly about how one episode is like Saw. Yep, yep. <laughs> in the Citadel, Teacher Rick has the same haircut as Professor Snape from Harry oh, Potter. Yeah. <laughs> I noticed that. Uh, there's an E.T. reference on the bikes in Morty's Mind Blowers. There's one where Rick is going through all these traps that he has, and it's like right. a parent trap. <laughs> uh, they roast SNL a few times. So anyway. This thought on this was, I think there's something in references themselves. So I, as you know, I own a lot of t-shirts that are custom made, that are some hybrid of Star Wars, video games, Calvin and Hobbes, and other movies, a couple other movies, right? So I have, for example, today, I think even, I'm wearing a shirt that says Megahon, but it's the 8-bit cutout of Mega Man (laughs) jumping through the air, but it's Mega Han instead of Mega Man, right? (laughs) Right. So it's Han Solo, but Mega Man, I have... um, you know, I have T-shirts of it's Luke and Yoda, but it's <laughs> walking Calvin and Hobbes. Up, but it's Calvin and Hobbes, and Calvin and Hobbes like Calvin flying as if the Battle of Hoth, as if he's Luke and right. Hobbes is the AT-AT. So anyway, I have a bunch of these shirts, and I realized, and, and or concert T-shirts. The other main T-shirts I own are concert T-shirts, and I do this intentionally because there's a part of me that wants to make someone's day with a cultural reference. So if I'm like out at the mall or I'm walking around and they see my shirt, they're like, hey, nice shirt. Right. Zelda, whatever, right? Right. And so I would be curious to know your riff <laughs> on the role of cultural references, oblique cultural references to that aren't like the subject of something or the object of it, I guess, but are there to be noticed and what that does for people. I think it is comfort building. I think that the reason we do it, the reason we even have something called pop culture is that it in some way unites us in commonality. Like yes, it yeah. gives us something to talk about. Mm-hmm. It gives us something to think about. And usually it's a boiled down universal emotion that we can all feel. Right. I love references, but like I've also found that communities are built around these kind of things. Sure. Yeah. Right. So you find someone who enjoys the same fantasy book series that you do. You have a, a commonality between the two of you that doesn't exist with other people because you don't have the language, right? But it's it's like anything. 
And I think the reason we like references and the reason that they make us happy mm. is because it's like, oh, I know, I see what you're doing there. Yeah. Right? It's yeah, that yeah. moment of, oh, I also love that thing. Yeah. I also love that band. Yes. Yeah. So. And there's a, there's a deep psychological thing going on there where I think it's like tribe building. Well, that's what I mean. I right? think it's actually way down in the, like, the very depths of mm. our biology is it's yeah. like we need to find reasons to get along. Yeah. And I think the shadow side potentially is the impetus to exclude. Yes. I think exclusivity <laughs> is the problem. Yes. Right. Because yeah. often it's like, well, we're real fans. Is that it's that idea of I'm a, a real fan. Yeah. And you're just a pretender fan. Right. Like, fuck that shit. Well, like, and I mean, actually, Stephen Pinker's written a little bit about this, too, of the psychology of the fan. He uses the example of someone at a concert, like someone near the front of the stage at a concert, yelling out in between songs for the band to play a really obscure early song right. that no one knows. Right. And it's yeah. the band themselves, if they hear it, kind of chuckle and be like, no one knows that song. Yeah. <laughs> really, the fan isn't requesting that song. What the fan is doing is signaling are, to yeah. everyone around them how good of a fan they are and how much more they know about the band than you do. I hate those people. <laughs> I can't stand them. Yeah, so I think that that's like the part of it to be wary of, but the abundant or the beautiful part about it, I think, is how you can signal to other people that there's something, I love what you love, I want to find you, let's share in that love. Well, one, I think one of my favorite things with references is when people find out that you like like something and then we'll will weave it into the conversation right. to, to show, hey, I like that thing too. It's um I like a, doing that with people. Totally. And it's it's a it's the icebreaker of parties when you don't know someone. So like I've gone into parties, I see someone wearing a something Montreal Canadians or Star Wars related. I'm like, okay, instant conversation we can have. Yes. And I love that. Yes. And and or if they make a joke about a movie, I'm like, oh, oh, you like this kind of movie? So do I. <laughs> like, yeah. Good one. Let's. And so I think cultural references are emergent icebreakers socially for new new friends. Yeah. You know? No, I like I love so that. Well, that's it's, that's, oh. that's when used properly. That's how they yes. work well. Yeah, I with, agree. When you don't have the exclusionary. But, but there is a trick there where it's like, it might happen anyway. Like someone might feel excluded, even if that's not your intention. Or or people who don't get the references yeah. often feel excluded, I think. And I actually have come up against that quite a bit in my life where most people don't talk about it. But I, I knew a guy in Korea who was quite actually critical of my social style and way of talking because he thought it was very exclusionary because of the kind of vocabulary I used and the things I talked about. And I just, I, I, I couldn't say it any more clear. It's like, I'm not trying to exclude people. I'm just curious about the world. Right. And that's what's interesting to me. I'm sorry if that's how it makes you feel, but I can't compromise on my own curiosity. No. Right? And then, so it's like, Someone's always so that's, but that's why it's tricky because some people can use cultural references intending to exclude others. And some people can just feel excluded, even if that's not the intention of the person. And that difference is hard to see super important to make known <laughs> yeah you know so yeah maybe that distinction will be useful for somebody out there because that's the one i use and because i know the difference because i actually was at different times in my life intentionally excluding people with yeah it's that, like yeah. i want to i want to find the other knowledgeable people on this subject and fuck the rest kind right. of thing i'm not interested in you and i'm actively not interested in you i was like eh, grow up luke <laughs> <laughs> So, okay, moving into the final bit of all of this, which is just the show stuff, Rick and Morty stuff. So, 
One thing I love is the trope of everyone talking over other people while they're talking and stuttering, right? Like the dialogue of this show is hilarious. Yeah, it's because very realistic. Always times where people are talking at the same time. Rick and Morty stutter a lot. <laughs> Rick because yeah. he's drunk. Morty because he's an adolescent. Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't have a... I don't know about you. Too. I guess I don't st- stutter very much on the podcast, but mm. I do find that sometimes my brain can't, in just a regular conversation, particularly a work conversation, it does take time to... Sure. And it will take time for my mouth to catch up with my brain, or my brain to catch up with my mouth. Well, I think it's... Be- I, I, my guess is because there are a lot of times where you have a patchwork idea of what you think about something, but when you have to articulate it, it all has to become conscious, which means you have to figure out the right words, and then the right synonym, yeah. and then the right uber synonym. So then you might... <laughs> Might, 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 right? And then, and yeah. then you go because yeah. that gives you that extra whatever millisecond second to get through things. So I think in real life, stuttering is often a placeholder for finding the right word. Yeah. In Rick and Morty, it feels a lot more like kind of part of their characters. Yeah. <laughs> but I think it's funny. Like, yeah. it's, it's hilarious in that they're basically breaking all of the stereotypical rules of how to make your characters talk to each other in a show. And it's part of its charm for me, not part of like, oh, that's annoying. It doesn't seem annoying. No. Yeah. And it's, that's why it's, I kind of like. It flows like, well. That's, it reminds me of The Big Lebowski. Yeah. Not, not exactly, but how The Big Lebowski is a movie where. It's a great the, movie. The dialogue style is completely unique take everything you learned about how to have your characters talk to each other in a movie and do something completely different and that's the big lebowski yeah <laughs> you know? yeah like characters cutting themselves off mid-thought to talk about something completely different in a total digression and then never going back to the original thought that they had it's just more realistic i think about as you say about your work example like the way people converse in real life is just messier than it ever seems on a TV or movies. Right. Way like, like, messier. Like you said, you had that memory where you were seven or something, and you're like, <laughs> wow, real life is just not like the movies. No, not at all. <laughs> I love that this show proves that intelligent humor can work. So I think this show is a real-life example of highest common denominator humor. Yeah, like we talked about in the first episode. Like, yeah, I agree. Yeah. I enjoyed how they started to include Summer more. I thought yep. that was a good show choice. I, I actually really liked that. At the end of season one, there's that one episode where the all the furniture thinks it's crazy for being able to see people <laughs> and like how it commits to its joke. Right. Okay. So the joke starts and I think they're like running through different multiverse scenarios. And right. it's like people sitting on Couches, chairs, yeah. ordering pizza on their phone. And then they have like pizzas sitting on phones, ordering couches. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> and like- then it's like uh, phones sitting on people ordering or or something yes, right like, yeah, like yeah, pizza, yeah. whatever all the combinations of, like all these combinations and permutations and yeah. the thing is the joke starts and then just continues and they don't make a point of it they just it has to be noticed yes <laughs> right, right. They're, like yeah, that's they're. something rick and morty is so good at is that committing to their own this is like not just rick and morty this is i love movies or shows that will have something in the background not the subject of a shot but able to be noticed by an observant viewer yeah. and that is actually part, part of, of the, the story yeah. and part of the joke so like i like horror movies that show monsters that aren't the object of the shot or the subject of the shot i'm not sure the right language there but they're in the background right so like in in the movie insidious there's a lot of great scenes where a, one of the main characters is like walking through the house or standing somewhere and like there'll be 
something that shouldn't be there in the corner. It's just you walk past and you only see it for a second, right? Or it's like standing behind something and you can only see it. Uh, It's not a jump scare because it's not the point of the shot. Now, Insidious does have a bunch of jump scares, but it also has a lot of that. And I love uh, horror movies. Good horror movies do that really well. Well, that's not supposed to be there. What's that? Yeah. That's not the well, subject it's, it's of the shot. Uncanny, right? Yeah. It, it, yeah. And Rick and Morty does this really well. Where there's lots of things that are like, that's that's weird. Why is that there? And then it's like, oh, <laughs> yeah. And the nice thing is that they take jokes from the past and they throw them into it like just randomly. Yeah. Yeah. Like they're it's so self-referential. That's why it's only pseudo episodic. Yeah, because it's <laughs> right? constantly self-referencing. Yeah. Okay, in season two, I love this part. It's the episode with Unity again, and everyone starts fighting over their stupid differences, like what kind of nipples they have um, when they're not Unity. And this is part of the ugliness of people being free, but that's the whole point of more hard work for people's freedom. And I mean, it's like, it's a little bit of Freud's narcissism of the small difference. Like they fight over their nipples, right? But I think we talked- People do fight over stupid I think it was our Huck Finn episode. We talked about the liberal dilemma. Yeah, and part of the liberal d- dilemma is like what to do, what to do with the fact that you're advocating for the freedoms of people who will not, who who will abuse those freedoms in one form or another, and the kind of ultra, I don't want to say conservative, the ultra authoritarian response to that is well, no freedom. Yeah, and the liberal response, at least like philosophically, if we go back to like the kind of John Stuart Mill even Adam Smith version of liberalism is no, we wearily defend that freedom. Yeah. Even yeah. though knowing that people will be shitty and they might fight over their nipples because this totalitarian way of doing things actually brings a lot more misery than this other way. And, and if we give freedom, there's a, there's, there's lots of there's work checks to be, and balances that happen with freedom that don't happen yeah. with authoritarian. And there's work to be done. And there's an opportunity cost of not having people who follow the rules being able to flourish yes. in a way that was part of what we want in life anyway. <laughs> like in South Park at the Citadel of Ricks, he hates himself the most. Yeah. <laughs> like Cartman hates Cartman the most. Yeah. <laughs> it's just so funny. Such a great insight. Always. Oh. Like the person you would hate the most is, is probably you. you. Oh, I had a, a friend say this to me recently because I was going through something with another friend and was really upset and i called my buddy and i was like i hate this thing that this person is doing sure no you don't he's like you just hate that you see yourself in it right yes because he's like you can pity people who have vices Mm. that you don't have but it's hard to hate someone who unless they have the things that you hate in yourself yeah uh here's a point i know you'll love the government collapses with no economy (laughs) yep yeah and i i um i agree like, I think it's foolish to think money is not important. I mean, it's not, okay, that's a truism. It's foolish to not think people who say money isn't important aren't also motivated by money. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's, well, and, and motivated by money, A, but B, by power, right? Yeah, right? Because they think that power is more useful to them on an individual level than money would be. Because... You'll find that the people who want to control everything nowadays, in my humble opinion, are not the people who have a lot of money. Right. Those people just want to continue on. Yeah, I, I agree. But it's like it's it's less drastic than that. Even is that money makes society function. Yes. Well, you, like you can't, you cannot have <laughs> yeah. like it's the it is the grease of and, the wheels. It's the I think it's I've... the engine. It's the energy in the in the machine. Mm. Well, and I think 
what is the useful distinction there. And I, I'm pretty sure the Bible actually even phrases it this way. It's like, it's not the, it's not money is the root of all evil. It's the love, love of, of money, money is the yeah. root of all evil. So if you make money the end goal of your pursuits, that's when things get off the rails. But if you realize money is the kind of thing that is a means to other ends, but it's an important means because it's what kind of prevents violence. Like it's that simple to me. Like, an economy prevents violence. Yeah. A functioning economy prevents resentment, build up, something to work towards. And I bring this up. I mean, I, I often say, because whenever there's a hard budget at work, it's like, well, I wouldn't work for free. So we need to be understanding of budget cuts if it happens. And if it's something we don't like, we need to figure out an innovation. Well, that's <laughs> and that's the answer, right? Yeah. Uh, 100% the answer, because right. if we're not innovating, if I, I say that there's two ways of looking at money. I don't know if I've mentioned this before. I, I might have. Uh, you, you have like off podcast, but yeah, talk so a little like bit there's about two ways to think about money, in my opinion. If money is something you create, or money is something that another person gives you. And I think a lot of people think of money as something their employer gives them. Right. But that's actually not what's occurring. That is not the exchange. The exchange is not someone has and they give the exchange is you have something that you give them like whatever you do in your job yeah whatever you do the for value your, given your, to your time creating a product whatever it is you apply your labor to that thing and then you are given what would arguably be a compensation for what you have exchanged yes money is something we create all of us create with our action in the world yes People are like, well, some people don't deserve to be that wealthy because their conception of money is not value creation. For example, let's take Apple, for example. Everyone loves their iPhones, right? Not <laughs> yeah. everyone, but like... A lot of people do. Billions love their iPhones, sure. right? And that value that has been created in my life by having access to knowledge, by having access to Wi-Fi, by having access to videos, like people are like, oh, $100 a, a month for a cell phone bill is... is is too high and i'm like well <laughs> i spend 10 hours a day on this thing well, yeah, that's for yeah. work and stuff but yeah, like yeah, yeah i guess my point is the value that has been given to my life by that is huge mm. and just because someone else has figured it out someone else has mass produced it doesn't mean that right. that they aren't giving me value and therefore i'm willing to pay for that value yeah now i guess the problem stems from finance that isn't related to value or borrowing or loaning and like well, there's a whole a world of, of things a, a finance a of world that I don't the financial know about. world like yeah. I wrote a whole paper on derivative trading and how we've created these false markets mm. and like the counter argument to that the Randian argument let's say is that the value that's being created there is stabilization sure. so insurance for example a lot of people are like well why do you need insurance well it, because it doesn't bankrupt people as much if you if if they yeah. have insurance, right, right, and yeah. so, so basically, it's risk mitigation, mm. and and the argument is that the financial instruments that have been created have fueled risk mitigation, but also fueled investments. So, like junk bonds, the creation mm. of junk bonds, for example, a junk bond was normally like a bank wouldn't loan to a project that was risky because that could result in them losing their initial capital and like yeah, how yeah, they yeah, regain yeah. that, right. Well, a junk bond is saying the risk is high, but we know that, <laughs> and therefore you're going to pay us a more interest on this loan than like a bank would charge simply right. because we know that. 
And the end result has actually been a whole bunch of innovation on these riskier plays that people make mm-hmm. because they actually have been given the opportunity to right. succeed. And so the, the, and, and like arguably the greatest wealth creation period in, in human history has actually been the last 30 years yeah. where we've seen an improvement of human comfort and life that we've never before experienced. So, Oh, it's more complicated than, than just like, cause value creation is, is also so ethereal. Yeah. Like what is value? And like you get into all kinds of questions there. Mm. But I I do think risk mitigation, I guess, was an example of of something that's actually quite valuable that that is underestimated by mm-hmm. the general population. Mm-hmm. So this is super interesting. So because you know a lot about this, where does where does potentially money go off the rails? Well, like, I think when is it too far? Well, so um Piketty wrote a book called Capital in the 21st Century and his critique of money was that and this is actually kind of the marxist critique only it's 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 better defined but he, okay let me backpedal here <laughs> sure i think i've said before that i think crony capitalism was where it gets off the rails actually when you use the power of the state to limit competition in order to solidify your position there's an idea that buffett talks about called a moat it's an idea in business and it's essentially your advantage like you create a moat around your business that they that gives you an upper hand against everyone else. So like it's, it's hard to overcome. It's that, you know, startup cost that, that becomes prohibitive, but that's okay. If it's built within a, an ecosystem that encourages competition, because eventually the apples are going to take out the Nokia's, you know, eventually the Facebook is going to take out the MySpace, right? That's good because that's evolution, that's development. But what's bad is when the power of the state, and I guess this shines a light on my own ideology, but like that when the power of the state is used to keep competition out in order to create monopolies or oligopolies, and then that is that is when wealth begins to be concentrated and inequality increases. Because if, if opportunity is, is more limited, then that means that certain groups are going to inevitably become wealthier. And we are seeing this happen now, particularly in the United States, even worse in Europe, uh, because the utilization of force, which is what the government fundamentally is, is, you know, they have a monopoly on force to create regulation that limits innovation results in inequality. Mm. So, so I would say, where does money go wrong? Money goes wrong when well, and then on the uh, on the flip side, money goes wrong when when there's a tragedy of the commons, right? So so when people are making money, but they are in some way reducing the quality of life of others in order to make that money. So let, sure. we're talking about pollution, right? We're talking about forestry practices that you know just destroy ecosystems things that are zero sum zero sum things uh overfishing mm, these things right that it, like when when there's no regulation so as much as i just said that regulation <laughs> can be utilized which it is to, to stifle competition regulation i mean it's a shadow side of there's the shadow side of regulation is being manipulated by powerful people to enrich themselves yeah which i see as, as the danger of socialism but on the flip side unregulated uh <laughs> industry industry there are people wolves 
that are all they care right. about is themselves and they're greedy and, and they'll destroy anything to make a profit. And they wouldn't be able to take into any kind of mature consideration a, a long-term environmental effect that might hurt the profit of the company maybe 30 years from yeah, now. Yeah, they don't when care they're about long that, gone. Especially when they're... <laughs> like, and this is the same problem we have with politicians is they think in election cycles, businesses think in quarterly reports. Right. Yeah. Right? Whereas I... So that these are all... I mean, humans have souls too, right? And, mm. and that's yeah, something... Yeah, yeah. We, well, whether they do or don't, I guess it's unimportant to... I think I know what you mean. in their human dignity and the dignity yeah. of the individual person. So, yeah, it could go wrong for sure. There's a lot of different ways it can go wrong, mm. but I think, I mean, I'm glad we aren't in a barter system anymore. <laughs> yeah, definitely. It's uh, it's it's so complicated. You could spend your whole life thinking and talking about yeah. money. I highly recommend. And, and the economy uh, is so important. Yeah, Neil Ferguson's um, the square in the, the tower. square in the tower because it it's a his so much of our history is about politicians and leaders, but there's a history of, of the markets. world of markets that is fascinating. So yeah. Well, if you're interested in more of that, please contact David. And I agree. Like I, 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 part of my growth, I think, is realizing the importance of money and the importance not of money itself, but the underlying kind of form of trust that it represents. Like you have to trust people will pay their bills, and it's another cost if they won't for you to track down. There, so it's like the money to me is a symbol of the trust reciprocity humans need to improve their lot in the world materially and often potentially socially and you motivate that trust by promised reciprocity of value and so that's not greed right like that that's the problem is that the association with any desire for engaging in an endeavor where you are going to make money as a synonym for greed is nonsense yeah but it's like any bad critique, there's an element of truth in there that needs to be fleshed out to improve the overall endeavor, I think, right? So yeah. that's what's cool about your thoughts on like there are forms of regulation necessary because of the blind, blind spot of particular yeah. <laughs> versions of things, right? So anyway, in season four, I thought it was funny, the episode where there was a problematic hologram word usage. <laughs> there's a hologram of Rick because Rick has been killed more used i was like well we need a real rick and the hologram's like that's oh, a bit of a problematic word usage because you're assuming holograms <laughs> oh <aren't> right, <laughs> right 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 <laughs> and so it brought up to me the idea of concept creep which is out there in the world now in the last couple of years of things being like a concept moving beyond what it originally was used for so microaggressions are a good example of like aggression being I'll punch you in the face. <laughs> Microaggression yes. being like, where are you from? <laughs> yeah. The utilization of these concept creeps for something else. Like even just using the word aggression in microaggression connotes a particular mental orientation of the person doing the aggressor. Yes. Which could be very different. Than like, their actual intention. Aggression is something that has to have a psychological intent. Yeah. Right? And a microaggression, as it were, could just be like a confusion of tact or etiquette but there's no malice there yeah so to even use the same word is a concept creep i think right and right. so the <laughs> i think they're making a joke here about the problematic hologram word oh, i think usage, so yeah, yeah which is so good 
uh, same episode and rick keeps coming back in his in different jeans, forms but yeah. it's always some fascist it's always like hitler rick <laughs> yeah. or, or nazi rick he's like when did this shit become default <laughs> i was like very funny and very topical yeah yep. <laughs> rick has experience machines for everyone so there's a little nod of the hat here too uh, Robert Nozick, the philosopher who came up with the, the experience machine thought experiment, which is essentially then the progenitor of the movie The Matrix. Like, right. how would you feel if your entire, would you take the red pill or the blue pill yeah. if you knew that your whole experience would be manufactured for you as opposed to quote unquote real? And, and yet, but it's so funny. Rick is just doing that for yeah, everybody. Just for everybody. <laughs> There's the dating app episode where everyone is just chasing their latest match. Yeah. And it's the death of intimacy, which is what is being critiqued in getting like Rick and Morty has a lot of heart to it yeah because in that episode they're basically saying like look this dating app culture removes intimacy from people's lives and that's really what they're chasing so you're being a fool yeah yeah and then final thoughts on rick and morty david i like that there's a show out there that can be so thoughtful and not just in its critiques of culture which i enjoy but I think that, you know, we've already got shows that do that. Yeah. What we don't have is a show that runs around with thought experiments and just this <laughs> glorification of of imagination yeah. and just says, what if? And with Rick, a voice going through these thought experiments with just the most, even if it's not caring or moral, the most honest take yes. on all of them. Yeah, I I think... It's the, I love what you said a few uh, in a previous episode where you said it's the show that the internet needed. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> and I, I think fans of this show and the and the love mm. that people have for this show is is evidence that this is the show that the internet needed. Sure. So let's do something a little predictive here. What do you think the legacy of this show will be? Hmm. Okay. Here's what I the legacy of this show will be a more holistic knowledge of complex philosophic ideas mm, yeah. among the general population. Yeah, I love that. That's probably exactly how I feel too. I mean, I, I know I talked about it, I think it was in the last episode, but to me, Rick and Morty is a show that says it admits to nihilism on the technical definition of it, but not on the experiential level of it. So it's like, yes, the universe is meaningless because of, like look at all this <laughs> and look at the disregard for sentient life and basically the universe that seems entropy to yeah. seems to do to us. And yet we have each other and we can still figure out fun stuff to do together. And that's really awesome. And that's what we should be doing. And so it, that's one example of what you're saying, but these philosophic ideas becoming more mainstream. Well, it's the highest common denominator yeah. thing. Like the final statement I think is thank God someone out there is, <laughs> is looking at their audience and saying, I think you're smart enough to get this. Oh, totally, totally. With it's that, actually a, a, a fundamental belief in the in human intelligence. Yeah, and maturity. Yeah, and, and an ability to not maybe, run screaming out of the building of nihilism. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the building's on fire. No, it's not. It just seems that way. <laughs> just feels that way. Yeah, and yeah, I, that's a good way to put it. So I, I can't do any better. So I won't even try. There we go. <laughs> so thus concludes our trifecta of Rick and Morty. This has been another episode of Really True Fiction. My name is Luke Mason. And my name's David Parker. Uh, wubba lubba dub dub! <laughs> I'm in pain! <laughs>